Welcome everyone. In memory of JJ, always a kitten, this is SMGP 51. I'm your host, David Rad, former writer of Games Industry Biz, Industry Gamers, and Gamer Feed. With me, someone who is no shirt, no shoes, all service. It's my contributor, editor, editor, and partner in potting. It's I, I can't say that I've ever been described that way while also uh, having never heard a more accurate description. <laughs> I'm going to admit that, like, I ripped that off from uh, a Sengen Kagura game, uh, like the one where I guess they're all, they're all on a beach uh, shooting water guns at each other. Beach um, Beat Splash. Yes, that one. That one. I saw it on the on the website. They use that to describe the game. I was like, "That's not. That's not bad. That's pretty good." That's, that's uh, very and also, solid. I know that. <laughs> I also know that that game is also very much in the center of the Tuesday Venn diagram. But um... I uh, I have played that game. <laughs> it's uh, it's not my favorite Center and Kagura game, uh, <laughs> but it, but I have played it. We will not be talking about that game today. We'll be talking about the uh, games media sources that influenced us in the long term and but before we get into any details i will just uh, mention our, our site patreon.com slash smgp and thank our patreon sinkerboy42 appreciate anybody who gives who listens and certainly gives any support you do you make all of this possible many thanks and now I'm going to shift over to housekeeping for the week. Uh, now, last week we obviously talked about Bioshock quite a bit, the first one. But I want to talk about, uh, in brief, like the series as a whole. I would say like one of the distinct strengths of the irrational-made Bioshock games is the narrative voice of Ken Levine. Well, Bioshock 2 is certainly not a bad game. It is definitely missing Levine's style of storytelling. There are twists that come later on in the franchise that I can understand why some people wouldn't like, but it's this sort of ethereal canon that really stuck with me when I think of the games. Now, uh, I've read some recent interviews with the director of Final Fantasy XVII, and I feel like whenever I read them, he is practically on his knees apologizing and the fact that it is not a turn-based game. Uh, <laughs> I feel like context is important, though. These are interviews with Japanese publications. It's because of the love for turn-based Japanese uh, uh, turn-based JRPGs that Dragon Quest, Quest mechanics haven't really radically changed in the past... Uh, 35 years. And it's also why the Yakuza series turned it into a turn-based JRPG. I assume most people in the West aren't confused as to why Final Fantasy has moved in a more action-based direction. Yeah, I, uh, when you said that, I, I was straight up going to mention Dragon Quest, uh, like, 11 is... All, all of the mainline entries have been very turn-based. Uh, they never really stray from that. Some of the spin-offs like kind of play around with it a little. But uh, I, when I started Dragon Quest Eleven, and I haven't beaten it because um, it's a very long game, Indeed. and I have, uh, I'm 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 bad at focusing. <laughs> for anyone who hasn't paid attention to the games that I play, um, like 
Dragon Quest Eleven. when I played that, I was like, wow, this is a turn-based game. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. Yep, 100%. And you can tell that, like, maybe at one point in time, like, actually positioning your characters matters, since you can move your characters on the battlefield, but it doesn't actually impact the, the combat at all. Like, exactly 0%. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I... And, I mean, for me, like, I love some of the Dragon Quest games. And I understand why they do it, though. Like, I'm not necessarily quite so sold on convention as that. Like, I think they could, it could be cool and not be a strictly turn-based game. But, anyway. Uh, now, uh, Gamescom recently happened. Uh, I have to give Jeff Keighley credit. He managed to bring together enough things to not make the people that watch this opening night program feel like they wasted their time. Uh, incidentally, like when that happened, that really made me realize how much of a games coverage, uh, military industrial complex that there is out there. And just like, you know, wow, like this is a lot of people are saying like, tune in as the, as we watch this whole presentation, I'm like, man, I'm, well, I mean, I guess that's fine. If you got a job, like I, I, I did not tune tune in for the whole thing. Um, but there are a couple of things I wanted to co- comment on, uh, uh, particularly like I watched some of the trailer late, lately. I, I'm just like, you know, Jeff, like you've got me for like three hours in December and like, uh, about three hours in June every year. You're not going to get me for like two hours in August as well. Okay. Like, uh, <laughs> but, um, firstly, like the Lords of the Fallen is being pitched as a reboot of the franchise. But it takes place in the same universe and will be a similar sort of game, a Souls-like. That's just a sequel. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if it's a different developer and the project was rebooted. It contrasts that with Dead Island 2, which is a game that also got dated at Gamescom and was also re- uh, a project that was rebooted. But they're not pretending it's not a sequel, like even though it has been a number of years from that first Dead Island or even the first Dead Island 2 reveal. Uh, I, I just want to say, come on, people, don't dilute the word reboot. Second, while I mentioned before that I've uh, watched showcases and thought I've seen certain games before, this time I felt it went a step further, and I could have sworn I've seen these trailers before. Uh, Like, like (laughs) to go back to the Lords of the Fallen, it's just like, okay, CG trailer showing a dark fantasy universe, skeletons emerging from from the ground, a uh, armored character comes on the screen, he engages with some monstrosity, uh, and I almost laughed when I heard the very distinctive chord come up from Danzig's mother. Oh, that song is so good, though. It is a good song, and I will give them the credit. It was actually Danzig. It wasn't a cover of Mother. So, like, uh, I was like, okay, that's cool. They shelled out for the real song. Uh, mm. And it, of course, like has some weird effects to it, since like it's a Souls like we have to show the main character getting killed and revived. Uh, but like the trailer is fine, but like, I was just like, God, I swear I've seen this trailer a half dozen times at this point. Uh, now, uh, uh speaking of another game that was uh, prominently showed up, the lies of P got a lot of attention and I wouldn't say it looks bad, but it is copying a lot from Bloodborne with un- automatons instead of gross monsters. Uh, 
not sure if you if you caught of that or of anything or not, but like just to give it like there's even subtle things of the character movement that look a lot like a from software game. It's uh, like we've talked before about like I mean we had a whole topic talking about like what defines as a souls like and I will say like you don't have to be a souls like to basically be trying to take things from the those from say from games wholesale. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I mean that game looks okay and it certainly it got some awards it got some attention like good for it though like I saw that it even has the factor that like if you lose health you get gray health and if you attack immediately you can get that health back I was just like okay just taking that directly from Bloodborne okay uh, the real exception for things that look cool and original was the game Everywhere which is uh, the game by uh, Rockstar veteran producer uh, Leslie B- uh, Benzies. It was a very short trailer, but the premise of an open-world game set in, a, in an oasis-like virtual environment is very intriguing, uh, and there's a lot of good people working on it. Still, the fact that it revealed afterwards that they are hiring blockchain experts has yeah. me... <laughs> Has me worried. They did deny that there was that like the game was being made on the blockchain or anything, but it is still concerning, shall we say? You had me, and then you lost me. Yeah, with uh, <laughs> with good reason. Uh, on the indie side, Swordship was pretty neat, and it was designed to be like a dodge 'em up, which, as far as I can tell, was combining wipeout with sh- uh, shum up uh, shum up elements without the shooting back. Uh, it just looks like a, a neat little premise. Now, uh, another thing I reflected about from Gamescom is that it was interesting to see developers all over Europe and China now outputting games that are at at minimum of high graphical quality. Another game that got a big trailer was uh, uh, w- Wukong, uh, which is about the uh, journey to the West story, at least at, at least in part. Uh, the sheer amount of content that's coming out, I feel like people will look back at the era that I came of age and gaming and go like, wow, the industry was so small back then. And you know what? I think they're going to be right. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, It really makes me realize in the era that I grew up in gaming that like, uh, the, the, like the places where games came out to and like, and the places that played games... It really was a very limited audience, and now it is very quickly extending to like everyone and everywhere. Now, recently, Blizzard felt the need to put themselves out there and contextualize what the Diablo 4 season passes will be. Uh, battle passes, I should say, not season passes. Uh, it There'll be a free tier as well as a premium upgrade. Uh, And uh, Keegan Clark uh, felt the need to to specify it will, uh, this will just give cosmetics uh, and say cosmetic gives players more options to customize the visual appearance of their characters. Nothing offered in the shop grants a direct or indirect gameplay advantage. So while many of these may look like powerful pieces of gear, they have no in-game stats. I, I just thought it was, it was interesting that like they felt the need to really get out of there and explicitly say like, no guys, it's it's not like 
uh, Diablo Infinite all over again. Like, it's not going to be like that. Oh God, please trust us. Like, even though this is also going to be an online service game. Uh, and I, I think it really just speaks to like how Blizzard's reputation is just in the dirt right now. Uh, like I'm sure even though this came out there, some people probably like don't even believe him. I'm not 100% sure I believe him. If that's true, then I think that's a good way to do that. Cause then like, great. Awesome. Like let, 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 uh, the people who want to pay for cosmetics pay for it. Um, cool. Uh, don't lock gameplay stuff behind like a bunch of money, but I don't know that I can trust them. Yeah. Like a, I can't honestly say, like, well, the, the only thing I could say is, like, if somehow they pulled an end, end around on it like they did for uh, for for Diablo Immortal, uh, and where they said, like, oh, you can't buy, buy gear, and then, like, but you could buy gems, and do if they, if they did something like that, where they were just like, actually, technically, like, uh, like, who could believe them on anything ever again? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Now, I want to have a quick addendum on a conversation we had last time. I believe I misinterpreted your question about Dishonored 2 and Emily and Corvo having a different set of missions. I thought you were asking if there were a different set of missions between Dishonored 1 and Dishonored 2. To specify, Emily and Corvo have the exact same set of missions in Dishonored 2. Uh, oh no <laughs> and, and also the story is basically the same with some small dialogue changes so oh no yeah I, I will say like that game strikes me it strikes me as a really hard platinum because uh, you have to beat it as both Emily and uh, Emily and Corvo and you also have to get a low ca- low chaos and a high chaos, and also a, a no kill run, which would basically be be low chaos. And you also have to have a run wherein you don't get the special ma- magical powers. Uh, that's so like you're talking about minimum three or two runs there, really. Uh, no, actually, actually, I take it back. There are some trophies that involve you using both very specific powers to Emily and Corvo. So you have to, so so we're talking minimum three runs through the entire game. Uh, but yeah, I I will I will just say for my uh, for my part, I like the game. Okay, not certainly not well enough to play it all the way through again. Um, <laughs> But speaking about what we're playing, Tuesday, what has been lining up your system this week? Uh, yes, I have returned to World of Horror. I have been playing it on my Steam Deck, and now I understand the game, uh, and I gotta say, it's really awesome. <laughs> like, I really, really love World of Horror now that I know I'm just not a fool. Um, it's, uh... So, uh, a brief, like, coverage of it, uh, that I had before, um, I, most of the runs that I do right now are, um, customized, uh, which, which means that, like, you pick the, um, event packs that you want, um, right now, uh, I have only unlocked, there are four bonus packs that you can unlock throughout gameplay. Right now, I've only un- unlocked one, 
Um, but whenever uh, I start up a run, uh, it lets you pick, do you want to disable certain event cards? Do you want to keep certain event cards? Yada yada. I keep everything on. Um, the game does have a seed feature, so if you really like to run, you can try that again with a different character. Um, but uh, now that I have kind of the base structure of the game, it is such that you pick a character, um, there are five mysteries that are laid out for you, um, and each mystery is broken down into a certain number of event cards and a narration over that. Uh, the narration is like the actual mystery itself, the event cards is where the roguelike stuff comes from. Those are the randomized events that happen throughout the mission. Um, the mystery itself, rather, in that, like, you can... Uh, there's one event card that I've seen quite a lot recently. I am going to talk a little bit about that as well. Um, wherein you enter a art studio, you see a uh, statue that the uh, event card reads, it looks very human, uh, you do see masks on the wall. You can either look at the statue, or you can look at the masks. Uh, I have seen that quite a bit. Uh, it's just that right now the game is still in early access, so I, I don't know how many full event cards it will have, but that one I've seen quite a bit. Um, and and that's just where the roguelike stuff comes up, where the randomization comes in. Uh, there is RPG battles that I have gotten pretty okay at. Um, the It's interesting in that like you have an event bar... Um, with essentially 200 points uh, that you can fill up anything that you want to do in that event bar with. Um, so what I like to do is that you are never guaranteed to hit an enemy. Um, you have like a prep for hit, a get ready to hit, which are two different commands, which I I don't know if we'll stay in the full game. Uh, it's interesting. Um, and then you have two different types of attack. You have just physical attack, like most characters either punch or kick, or you have attack with a weapon if you have one of those equipped. Uh, you can attack with your fist if you do have a weapon equipped. It's just what does more damage that you kind of want to figure out. Uh, whenever I am in an RPG style battle, I like to uh, ready up either two or three times, hit, ready up two or three times, hit, and then go for it. Uh, it does have a nice feature where you can save the pattern that you're using and load it up, um, so that's pretty cool. Um, but with the customized runs, it has really let me kind of see the distinctions between characters, because there are more than one, um, and like kind of play around with it and see which style I like best. Every character has a stat that they're good at and a stat that they're bad at. Um, funnily enough, um, the swim team captain uh, is actually probably the easiest to play character, because she has a whole bunch of perks herself that uh, you can pick upon leveling up, that like actually buff her speed in combat. So uh, you can actually end up doing more actions in the same amount of time. So she's got that benefit. There is one character uh, who is a Yakuza driver who a lot of his unlocks re uh, revolve around getting more items from the shop. Uh, one of his perks is actually called Yakuza card, which allows you to get another item from the shop and like uh, removes a... a illicit uh, tag from items, which mean that more items can show up in the shop. Uh, that means like different kinds of weapons can show up in the shop and stuff like that. Uh, so each character kind of has their buffs and um, stats that they can specialize in. I really like playing as the swim team captain and the um, celebrity. 
Uh, the reason I like playing as those is because the Swim Team Captain, real easy to just start racking up damage against enemies in the combat that you do. Um, because combat can kind of be where a run ends. You have two health meters essentially. Uh, you have your stamina, which is just your durability, how many times you can get hit, and your um, reason, which is your sanity. Uh, reason can be taken down in both in combat and through event cards, um, so that's not really... Reason is not a stat that anyone is super great at. There are characters who are worse at it, uh, but they're like no one's ever going to get a buff in reason. Um, so the Swim Team Captain is great at like just staying alive and doing damage, uh, the celebrity is great because she actually, um, a lot of her perks at the end of when you level up actually deal with the amount of uh, party members that you have. Um, whenever you are in combat, it is still just you against the enemy, but party members act interestingly in that they act as a um, perk. Uh, every party member that you has has like a distinct uh, like passive ability that they bring with them. There are some that like uh, remove or like lower the cost of items in shops by one dollar. There are some that like buff your uh, dexterity. There are some that actually remove stats from you. <laughs> so it's kind of a give and take. Um, but the celebrity has some fun um, fun perks wherein like one of them is the more allies that you have, the more damage you actually do. Um, and as far as I've seen, there's no realistically there is a cap on how many um like people you can have following you around um but like i haven't found it yet uh so if you have like five people following you around you're doing five more damage so that's a really great way to get overpowered um but it's a lot of fun now that i'm actually doing the game and actually knowing how to play it uh i really like it um there's it's actually, I actually started playing it again as well, because yes, I did have the Steam Deck and I wanted to play it around with it, uh, but I also read um, the entirety of Tomi, uh, Junjei Ito's uh, manga, and I was like, alright, I, I know that World Before has taken some inspirations from uh, Tomi, and uh, that event card that I was talking about where you see the uh, life uh, lifelike statue is a very kind of distinct reference to Tomi. Um, the one thing that I do think is kind of a downside right now is that because it is in early access, you do end up seeing a lot of event cards uh, just kind of in circulation. Uh, so you'll be seeing the same ones if you've played it, like, enough. Like, I've played it maybe seven-ish hours over the past week. I've seen that event card a lot. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that that can definitely happen. It's worth noting that... Uh, and I've told you uh, this off-stream before, but, like, the game is, like, obviously very inspired by the Arkham Horror board game series, which is... Yes. Um, which is a... Basically, uh, a cooperative game where a bunch of players uh, play against the the environment and are trying to discover an elder horror. Uh, but, like, I mean, World of Horror obviously has the very particular set, setting of, J uh, of Japan... But it is it is definitely a Japan through uh, the eyes of Western of a Westerner looking at Japanese media. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, so like that gives it a, a distinct tone. And like yes, like Junji Ida, obviously a huge inspiration to it. But um, uh, like including and especially in the extremely disturbing visual, uh, like one bit visual. I don't know, like it's some sort of eldritch black magic that like some of the visuals are so disturbing and it's just black and white uh oh absolutely there is like 
<laughs> Fun fact, there is a um, lawyer distinct cameo of Junji Ito in there, so he can't sue them. Um, but, like, there's this struggling manga artist that, um, an event card that you can have three choices of. Uh, you can share your um, stories, which will actually take away your experience. Fun fact, experience actually can be used as a currency sometime. That's a really cool that's a really cool feature. Um, so you can take away some of your experience. You can tell him to do it himself, and uh, you won't get any money or lose any experience. Or there's this third option that says, what is that? And uh, it's like he's working on a drawing that's just like this being that doesn't have a face, and it's just covered in blackness, um, which will actually start an encounter that's coming for it like this. It's called something that is truly evil uh that like there will be a little counter at the top of the screen of just this unkillable horror that is following you through events uh that like every time that like every every combat encounter that you have um is either you know kick it uh kick it hit it or like exercise the spirit when it when it's something that is truly evil, your options are beg for mercy, give up, uh, praise the evil. It's like just this essentially eldritch Satan. <laughs> and it's so crazy and cool. It's a, you're giving me anxiety just describing me this thing. Uh, oh, yeah. It's actually really funny, too, because like various like game elements will change, too. Like when you investigate a room... Uh, to progress the mystery, you see, like, a little sprite of yourself going through the area. Um, if the counter is, like, high enough, then it will be replaced by the being of something that is truly evil. It will be replaced by that little sprite. Um, there are some times that, like, pieces of the event cards will be um, uh, modified to, like, show the face of something that is truly evil. It's, like, just really scary. And it's got, like, a hundred health. Like, the, the highest enemy health that I've seen is, like, 36, and that's big, considering that most of your weapons do, like, 5 to 7 damage. Like, there's a katana in the game that does 7 damage and has a really good chance to hit, but that's the highest damage that I've seen in the game. Yeah, it's... So is it uh, appropriate to cannon Japan and, like, it's, uh, you can't get firearms? Um, you... I, I believe with the Yakuza card, you can find a firearm in the store, but the only way to um, get a gun is to... There's an event card of, like, a dead police officer that you can um, grab the gun from, uh, and there is a specific cultist enemy that carries a hunting rifle. Those are the only two ways to get guns. Uh, bullets are... You do have a bullet counter, um, but also, if you fire the gun you will actually then, like, get a uh, debuff that is um, tinnitus. Uh, and, that, like, I think that drops your dexterity by a couple points. Um, and uh, the only reason, really, to actually get a gun is because the Yakuza driver actually also has a perk that, like, increases his damage by two if you're using the handgun as a melee weapon. I see. So he just pistol whips people and he's apparently good at it. Uh, yep. Uh, it is funny, though, because there's also a cigarette uh, counter, and um, uh, he 
<laughs> the Yakuza driver starts with like cigarettes in his inventory, and um, if you smoke them on a mission, then he like what his base perk is that when he has the nicotine rush um, perk uh, or status effect rather, um, he actions take less time for him. Uh, but when he is not, when he doesn't have cigarettes, he is in nicotine withdrawal, which makes his uh, combat speed much slower. Um, and and you just have to keep buying cigarettes. It's <laughs> funny. Also, when you uh, named your two favorite characters, I was, I was like, is it going to turn out to be the two female characters? I was like, yep, uh, it certainly did. Uh, it is. Uh, there, one of the characters that I do like, I don't love his perks because they're all based around like inventory management, which isn't great. Um, he is a reporter, and he actually starts with a camera, which gives you an intelligence buff. So that's pretty okay. cool. Okay, that's cool. So the so we have a Yakuza driver, a reporter, a, uh, the captain of the swim team, and a celebrity. Is that the four characters? There are, right now, I think there are like... I want to say there are like seven or eight. Okay. Um, actually, I want to, maybe there are eleven. Uh, wow. There are a lot of unlockable characters. Two that I've unlocked is a nurse, like a med student, um, and a priest, uh, who is actually a reference uh, to the little indie game Faith. If you've heard of that, um, I, I I have not heard of that though. I mean, like again, okay. like every, everything you're describing, like is very like playing different personas that is very much uh, like Ar- Arkham Horror. You would play different characters mm-hmm. in that with slightly different abilities, all the small little uh, buffs and debuffs that, that they would have usually conveyed via like very small cards that you would get in the game. Uh, the items you would pick up, your your sanity, your uh your 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 health um the fact that like oftentimes there would be different choices you can make in a mission and it would often be a case of like unintended consequences when you make certain choices uh mm-hmm. but uh but yeah all, all of that is very much like Arkhamor, but at the same time like it is also a roguelike video game and so because of that like uh, you're going to be you're implicitly going to be playing it over and over again. So like they want to give you incentives to do that, and like to, doesn't more of the story unlock when you when you play certain mysteries over and over again? Yeah. So every mystery does have multiple endings. Um, well, except for one of them. Except for one of them. Um, but like, uh, it kind of goes like A is the best ending, and descending is the worst. Um, for example, like the tutorial. A mystery is um, the spine-chilling uh, story of the school scissors, uh, which is like just a scissor ghost. Um, like the A ending is that you've exercised the ghost, you've saved your friend, everyone gets away. Uh, the C ending is that you did not exercise the ghost, uh, your friend is dead, uh, and you kind of walk away worse for it. There's a B ending that I got that is actually my favorite ending of that mystery because it's you exercise the ghost, but you do it incorrectly. Um, you, the status of your friend is unknown in that mystery, but she leaves behind her scissors. And uh, when you go back to your apartment after that, the scissors are in your inventory. And you can equip them, but when you do, there's a slight chance of increasing the doom meter every time you use them as a weapon. Uh, which Doom is just this counter up in the top of the screen, that once it hits 100, the Eldritch God that you've been fighting wins. (laughs) 
Yep, that's also another very Arkham Horror thing. Like the, uh, I, it might even be called the Doom Counter. It's been a while since I played the game, but like there is something very much like that. That uh, it basically ca- counts down to when, uh, whenever the Eldritch being that is trying to manifest itself, uh, like actually manifests. And uh, in that case, you actually uh, you actually fight the being in in most cases, although it's often a very hard fight. Uh, and uh, though I, I remember like one, one of the entities like if it ends up summoning it just swallows the entire world and you lose so uh, you obviously mm-hmm. don't want that to happen but um, yeah they're sorry I keep on I keep on going back to Arkham Horror but like it's really it's really a huge inflection point for uh, for, for the game and it's but the, this uh, but World of War obviously has its own neat uh, twist on the formats, and I still hope one of these days that it will launch on other platforms, since I know that was always the intention of the developer. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I know I know that he eventually wants to finish it, but um, right now we're just kind of waiting. I if it's any if it's any um, comfort. We usually get yearly updates, and the last update uh, was from 2021, and that was the 0.9.84 build. Uh, so that's not a like not 1.0 build. <laughs> yeah, it, it's clearly pretty far along, and I know he has uh, like it, it is a part-time job right now. I know his full-time job is a dentist. Uh, I believe he yeah. I believe he is Polish, but. Uh, I know a lot of people like he fell out of contact during the COVID years, but like he he hasn't spoken directly about his life, but uh, uh, it was kind of tough, and I can and I think anybody who has lived through those times can understand. But yeah, mm-hmm. work on that game continues. It's like I said, I would uh, I showed I showed you some very cool merch for that game that uh, came to fan, fan gamer like yeah uh, you know I. Uh, I I love that this game has gotten this much attention, and I really do hope that it, it manages to re- like go 1.0 re- release on consoles, like get a uh, a full time release because like that then it would reach a whole new audience, honestly. Uh, and yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Fun uh, quick addendum as well is that uh, Junji Ito was a uh, dental technician before he took off as a manga artist so that's a fun parallel <laughs> that's, that's really interesting there uh, well so, speaking of launching ourselves into things that aren't really horror at all I played Myst uh, the seminal adventure game now uh, for Complete disc- disclosure: the version of Mist I played was actually the version that released in 2021. There have been a couple of extra versions of Mist. I think I think this is fully the the fourth version of Mist that has come out, and this version of Mist is basically VR VR compatible. Um, I did not, however, play it in VR. But it uh, it is essentially the same game. It is replicating much of the style of the original game, and also all of the puzzles are exactly the same. So, for all intents and purposes, even though it does have the annoying thing of being a remake that has the exact same name of the game it is remaking, it is essentially the same game. Uh, 
Now, uh, Mist is structured in a hub format. There is the main hub island of Mist, and there are four ages you can go to, which is our uh, which are uh, Seleninic, Stoneship, Mechanical, and Channelwood. Uh, how familiar are you with Mist at all, Tuesday? Um, I believe that I own two different versions of Mist. Have not played either of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it is uh, a puzzle game, a classic adventure game, in a lot of res- uh, in every sense of the word. Word. It is uh, not not a action based game at all. There's a couple of puzzles that are slightly timing based but most are not uh, and uh, and in the world some puzzles make some amount of sense you redirect water through pipes to make uh, pneumatic elevators function like that that makes sense uh, however in the more obscure vein there's one where you have to use a telescope to uh, read the di- directional heading of a grounded ship uh, and then enter it into a compass machine and then later play a sequence of notes uh, later you have to play a sequence of notes on a spaceship and match the t- tone tones on the control control instruments uh, thankfully unlike this is probably the biggest change from the original Mist this is that they will handily provide some uh, s- some visual cues accompanying certain sound effects like if there is a like a twirl or a horn or something like that it will come up in a subtitle like like horn plays or swirl plays or something like that so there's no actual guesswork around the sounds being made the same thing comes to like the keyboard puzzle for which I am eternally thankful since it's like oh like this particular note on a piano you have to figure out what that is I'm just like I don't I don't want to play a piano like I'm like you're asking me <laughs> to know the difference between a a and like an an a sharp like uh, no I'm I'm not going to be able to identify that uh, that is just the nature of the game uh and the most infamous puzzle in the game is the rail maze in the selenitic age uh and where you have to uh you have to move in one of eight directions and it is based around the sound cue and the clues for that came from the mechanical age in four different sounds which denote the four principal directions now you know how silent the silent hill series has always been great about taking notes for the player on things yes uh, it's one of the best features of that franchise yeah there are no notes kept in mist uh oh that's terrible yeah anything you have like it is assumed that the player is going to be writing them down so or in my case, occasionally looking at a guide. Uh, 
I will be honest, like, I used a guide to kind of give a little bit of direction. Because, frankly, uh, the only thing you get once once you go onto the Island of Mist is a short letter as kind of an initiating event that it kind of sort of kicks off the story. But, like, it's otherwise, like, you'll go on, you'll be on the docks on the Island of Mist, and, like, there's this sail ship next to you and then you see some uh, large gears protruding from the ground in the near distance and then there is a library building and you also see like a bronze spaceship on the side of the of that building and like and all and none of these things like have any context to you like what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to figure it out and this is both this, I think, strength and weakness, frankly, uh, in, in its appeal, is that it definitely does not handhold you on anything. However, at the same time, for me personally, I like and need a little bit of context, frankly. Like, uh, I realize it is a tough difference to split between, say giving you something that like the player has to figure out and just and giving them essentially the solution mist in all cases basically assumes that the the player can figure it out uh, or will be consulting some sort of guide another clever quest like you have to uh, empty this one area of water and then you go down there and there is a I don't know how to describe it other than just a uh, a treasure chest that's on top of a device that's uh, tend to bob up and down on the water, and it and like what you're supposed to do is basically it's it's a jug with a spigot on the end, and you're supposed to empty out the water from it, and then you're supposed to go go back, put water back into the chamber. And then you can go back to that area, and it has floated to the top of where you uh, where the water was initially emptied. Then you're supposed to open that. There's a key in there. And then you take that key and you and you put it into a nearby keyhole, like and that and that's that's that particular solution to that puzzle. Uh, nothing really is provided as a clue for any of this, frankly. Uh, that one I thought was particularly clever, but yeah, oftentimes the uh, the game just feels like it's being fairly obtuse for obtuse sake. Uh, Gosh, that sounds terrible. Like, <laughs> is I I'm only asking because you have more potential to have played uh, adventure games like this. Is it like is it just moon logic? <laughs> I mean, I feel like part of it is that there was a sort of logic to the game, but yeah, like there was definitely a lot of what I like to call adventure game logic, uh, yeah. in that it's it's kind of obtuse. The clues are also fairly obtuse to to figure things out. I think they basically want the player to just just experiment, try things out, examine, take notes, puzzle things out. I'm sure for certain sorts of people. 
this was appealing. In fact, I know it was because guess what? Mist was actually the best-selling PC game of the '90s. Uh, it was it was a huge hit, mm-hmm. and and actually helped uh, popularize CD-ROM drives for PCs because it it came on a CD because it was it had a bunch of fancy pre-rendered images and movies. Uh, most games came on floppy disk before that for PC, but uh, anyways, like it's uh, yeah, it's funny you say all that since like I would say ultimately at the end of the day, uh, the actual puzzles themselves I thought a few were clever, but yes, a couple I just thought were being obtuse for their own sake and. Like I, I use the use the guide without, frankly, any any bit of shame. Like there's another puzzle where you have to, um, it's another island where you have to turn on these different machines that are making different sorts of sounds, and then you have to go to a machine in the middle of the island, and it kind of play it plays through a sequence of those sounds which correspond to a symbol, and you have to align the machine to make sure that it. It is playing the right right sound that corresponds to the right symbol at the right time, and then you get all those symbols corresponding to the to the sounds, and you you enter it in the right order on a key panel, and that's how you get to the maze that I mentioned before. Uh, does anything tell you that's exactly it? No, but that is the way the game works. So I I am not a huge puzzle guy, so it it is what it is. Like I'm willing to acknowledge some amount of cleverness, but also, classic adventure games that I liked in the PC space were more of the clever LucasArts varieties that had charming characters and whatnot. There is very little character interaction in Myst. Uh, it is mostly a extremely solitary experience. Uh, it's yeah. It's always struck me as not quite a horror game. Um, like actually not a horror game at all, but like yeah, just like a creepy like solitude environment. It, solitude is the right word word for it because it is. Uh, I mean, other than interacting with a couple characters that are stuck in magical books, which is part of the game's odd magical lore, which is not really very fleshed out in this game, uh, but uh, it is. Uh, it is what it is, uh, and I will say, like, it very faithfully recreates this 2021 version, the the style of the game, which I could tell it was a game built on the early 90s 3D artwork software HyperCard. So it mi- mixes simple machines that, like, early 3D could render, like gears and ships and uh, simple spaceships with natural scenery. And it also used a lot of QuickTime video for, for the uh, full motion video parts. Uh, and it's all referencing a bunch of uh, technology that nobody bo- uh, born before the, the 20th century will, will ever appreciate. Uh, or bo- born, I should say not before, uh, born in the 21st century will appreciate. But um, anyways, like, so, uh, you know, Mist is what it is. Uh, <laughs> I, it's one of those games that I just kind of played for completion's sake, since, like, if you want to talk about kind of 
relevant games of all time, Myst is probably up there. It's an important game for the history of gaming, certainly for PC gaming. But I would say its biggest inspiration now is just kind of those uh, like hidden picture games uh, that you'll see that mm-hmm. I don't I don't particularly want to play either. So uh, yeah, that's fair. That is fair. And I will also say, as far as like, there were multiple sequels that were produced. Uh, Riven, which was the first initial sequel, was really infamous for like really cranking up the obscure nature of the puzzles. And I will just say, like, uh, do I feel invested at all to play that? And I say no. I've I've played Mist. I've done my due diligence. I'm done. Uh, I've heard that it's only uh, only one good game. Uh, and uh, the rest of the franchise is very bad. <laughs> I think probably people who really like the franchise might say It and Riven are the best, partially because like those are the only two games that had the same core development team. After that, it, it kind of got passed around a little bit, and I feel like the series started to lose focus. But there's aspects that I... Uh, I can definitely see like how this would appeal to certain people. I knew somebody in college who really loved Mist uh, to the point where like he actually wore a baseball cap around that was branded in Mist, uh, like an actual an actual li- licensed Mist hat. Uh, to the point like that was actually his nickname in college, Mist Hat. Uh, <laughs> that's not a bad nickname honestly and it, it, it actually wasn't I, I like the he, he stopped wearing the hat for a while but the but the nickname remained and back when AOL instant messenger was a thing his uh, his handle on there was also missed hat uh, and uh, though he, he did feel the need to like have an alternate account at uh, Riven hat when the uh, when the sequel released but uh, <laughs> but uh Anyways, putting putting aside uh, uh, old adventure games that uh, ain't nobody cares about anymore to the side, Tuesday, what else has been lining up your system this week? Uh, yes, uh, I it's it's nice that you put it that way because um, the something that I have been uh, I've talked about is my adoration for uh, some of Inti Creates games. Uh, earlier this year, I was actually very critical on uh, a game that they released, Luminous Avenger X2. Uh, they have also released Gunvolt 3. I was very nervous about Gunvolt 3, um, and I I am thankful that they released a demo, because I was able to sit down and play the demo, and um, I don't know what side team they had working on X2, um, but they've been thrown in the trash, because Gunvolt 3 is really awesome. Uh, <laughs> um, so the way that Gunvolt the series has worked so far is that Gunvolt the main character uh, he has a gun um, that like tags enemies but the main kind of damage that you're going to be dueling is from his flash field which just shoots out like bolts of electricity at enemies um, you do not necessarily always play as Gunvolt in the third game in fact most of the time you play as a swordswoman named Kirin Kirin has a very similar system to Gunvolt in that um, her Y button attack, the main kind of bolt attack that you're going to have, is a cleansing talisman. Interestingly about Kirin, however, is that the talisman does no damage at all. It merely marks enemies. So this is a brand new system for this game. Um, 
what she does is that as she marks enemies, once they have like a um, circle seal around them with like a few chains coming out of it, uh, that means that they can be binded. And what you do with binding is you just slash them, which if an enemy has uh, the full seal around them, it's a one-hit kill. And man, oh man, does it feel really good. Uh, it's a really fast game to play. Um, like, the demo is only two stages. Uh, they are pretty short stages. I assume that they just picked the two shortest stages that they could throw in there so that they're not giving away too much of the game. But the system is really great. I was really nervous uh, because uh, Kirin is a obviously kind of melee-focused character in that way, in that all the damage that she does comes from her sword. Um, in Luminous Avenger X2, um, most of your ranged attacks were limited to a meter, uh, and your only base attack was with a three-hit combo that was very short. Um, so I like that they, instead of relying on kind of metered attacks for Kirin, uh, they give you back that both ranged option, and then uh, they actually make you do the um, flash field. With her, it's the sword strike. Um, and it's a really good system. I really like it. Um, it's... Kirin is really fun to play as. Uh, I, I like it because she does feel adequately, adequately quick. Um, her base run is not that great, uh, but you can dash, and she dashes really fast. Like, there's actually a part of the demo that is like the floor is collapsing beneath you, kind of like one of those old side-scrolling games. If you just keep dashing, you can actually run to like a piece of the floor that does not fall, and they actually want you to do that because there's a little emblem you can collect there. Uh, so it definitely, um, definitely, definitely, definitely um, incentivizes speed, uh, and I quite like that. Uh, Kieran's Blade, you can also just slash it without tagging enemies. Um, you're not going to do full damage to them. Um, but they do have like a really nice explosion and kind of like screen coloring effect when you do hit them and one hit kill them. Um, so it's kind of, it's fun to just like tag them and, and do that slash attack. Uh, so that first stage is mostly just about learning about Kieran, how she plays. Um, there is story bits to this, uh, but I've always thought that the Gunvolt story is not important uh, to the point that like in cutscenes I've just skipped them. I'm sure it's a fine story, um, but the kind of oh, I wouldn't uh, be so spheres... I wouldn't be so sure about that. I've seen stories that uh, Inti Creates has done. <laughs> you know, you know the internet circles that I've hung around in, specifically regarding Gunvolt and Luminous Avenger X. I like. Who cares about the story? <laughs> nobody, nobody really pays attention to the story. Um, there are people who like it, um, but I've seen a lot more people play these games for the gameplay, and I happen to be one of those people. Now, this game actually does allow you to turn off the story, fun fact. There's just this like, little <laughs> menu button called Story Mode Plus, where if you turn that off, none of the in-game dialogue shows up. And the reason that's important is because the in-game dialogue is just massive windows of dialogue. Over, like It's, oh it's got a translucent text box, so you can still see the action happening, but it's over the gameplay... Like, and it's distracting, it's annoying, it's like, no, I'm turning off this, I'm turning the story off, I'm just playing the game for this, like, really fun action. Um, I, thanks, Inti Creates, you, you finally understand why I am playing this game. 
<laughs> or at least I think um, they re- they've realized that some people just really don't like their overly rot a lot rot visual novel stories that they're trying to insert into their yeah. old their old school eight bit action uh, action games. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the thing is that like I don't love the Mega Man Zero games. Uh, they are very difficult, um, like incredibly difficult. Um, but like. For the people who do like them, the action is there, like, the kind of skill floor and ceilings are there, like, you can play around with the stuff. Inti Creates is good at making good games. They're not the best at making stories, so they at least, like, with Gunvolt 3 are aware, yeah, fine, people don't play our games with the story, fine, we'll just give you the gameplay. (laughs) Thank goodness. Um, The other major stage that you play in uh, this demo does give you uh, Gunvolt. Gunvolt operates interestingly in this game, in that Kieran is the main character, um, she plays no meter, you just play her by default. Gunvolt is, through some weird Japanese story stuff, sealed inside of like a spiritual leopard kind of thing. Um, <laughs> that, like, it's, I don't know. It's like, uh, you have to like kill enemies in order to like charge him up and then you can switch over to him but he is uh regulated to like what is in the game represented by four kind of spirit flames uh when you take damage as gunvolt those flames go out when they all go out you switch back over to kieran um but he's he got he has really good interesting gameplay like he does play very similarly to how he did in one and two uh which i really like his gameplay style um but the only thing that I have a criticism of is that when you're playing as Gunvolt, um, it's just a super meter. Like, it's... Gunvolt is overpowered to the point that, um, like, he's supposed to be. That's fine. But it does really, like, in a way, kind of take the excitement out of Gunvolt playing as him. Because there have been enemies that I have hit with the, the gun and not needed to do flash field with. Like, they just crumble to Gunvolt's pure damage output. <laughs> and and I'm sure on higher difficulties, that's not the same, but the demo only allowed for normal difficulty. Um, but, like, for a good example, um, the boss of this, the demo, um, when you are fighting it, uh, Kirin does... Because she does not have a ranged damage option, she only has the tag option... Um, she cannot hit damage it. It floats in the air. When you switch over to Gunvolt and you start tagging it and using the flash field, that health bar drops. Like, it drops. You can single cycle the boss as Gunvolt. Um, so that's okay. Uh, I do know that the game has gotten an update where you can actually just play the full game as Gunvolt, but he has, like, an interesting kind of way to access that super meter, so he's still a little bit balanced, but um, my impressions of the demo are I am no longer worried about uh, Gunvolt 3. I'm getting Gunvolt 3. I'm very excited. That's great. I have one important question to ask about Kirin, uh, who uses a sword. Uh, is, she, is she a wanderer? Uh, they, I don't know. I don't know. It's... <laughs> she does have a katana. She does have a katana. <laughs> does she have oh, man, the... a gunvolt roguelike? <laughs> does she have uh, the uh, the straw sun hat thing? She does not. Unfortunately, she does not. Did that uh, I I love that sheer in the wanderer over like every single entry he's been in. He always has the straw sun hat. It's like yeah. oh man, man knows a good hat. <laughs> yeah. 
that that is his thing. That that was I'm sorry, that was my first thought when I heard Kieran the Wanderer. But I mean, that's cool that like it's it's neat. It sounds like they're using this series to like, even though this is a Gunvolt game, like it's kind of. Uh, they're saying like, "Hey, like Gunhold is so powerful now, you can't even use them all the time. You're actually playing as mm-hmm. this other character." Uh, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, it sounds like the story has got like the longer any series that Inti creates controls gets, the the just the stupider the story gets. I am convinced. Yeah. Uh, like they they're convinced that these stories need to be super long and super deep and super complex like even the Mega Man 0 franchise was like that too like the the stories yeah. got super dumb and long uh it <laughs> so and this for like Gunvolt this is uh this is the fifth game between like three mainline and two spin-off games right so uh or, like, yeah, because there... Yeah, there was uh, Gunvolt 1, Gunvolt 2, then Luminous Avenger X, then there was quite a bit of space, then there was X2, now there's Gunvolt 3. Um, there is a little sub-series called Mighty Gunvolt, but I'm not going to count that really, because that's more of like a um, Mega Man tribute kind of game. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've... Mostly, mostly in that time between X one and two, they were working on um, what was that other series that they did? Mega Man Master Blaster Zero. Yes, Master Blaster Zero is what they have been doing in the meantime. So, yeah, along with uh, helping to put out the different Bloodstain games as well. Yes, uh, uh, including the the one main game and the two the two downloadable. So like, mm-hmm. I mean they they have been they've been busy little bees, uh, but uh, I'm only thankful that like they clearly di- it didn't have any uh, clearance to put any story in any of those bloodstained games. So uh, yeah. I just want want to say that I was very thankful that Bl- uh, bloodstained uh, cur- uh, curse of the moon had uh, almost zero story. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and and you know what? Like it was better for it. Like uh, especially since like even though it was quote canon to the main series, it would basically be described as like kind of a. Uh, it, it felt like a prequel to the full Bloodstained in kind of a fever dream sense. Uh, like yeah, it. Uh, I know that like it was weird because it started as a prequel game and then they were like, it's still semi canon. And then when um, Curse of the Moon 2 came out, it's like, okay, this is... the You guys are just admitting this is a separate canon, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it just has to be. Like, it, like even though it, it it was obviously built on the idea of just like, hey, Zangetsu, his adventures beforehand. But, like, I think while they were making it, it just became something different. So, and, yeah. And it's just like, okay, whatever. Like, that that's fine. Like, they, it's not even story-driven anyways. It's, it's actually yeah, different. Yeah. And that... Uh, uh, and, and by the way, like everybody should play uh, uh, Cur- Curse of the Moon. That uh, that game is awesome. Uh, Curse of the Moon is fantastic. Yeah. This like we are not sponsored by Curse of the Moon, but uh, Curse of the Moon is great. Curse of the Moon yeah. is great. Yeah, that, that is to, that is to me the the best game by Indie Creates I I have played. Uh, and uh, and also Bloodstained Ritual of the Night is is also a hell of a game, but. Uh, that is that is something very different, but yeah. Uh, but going back to 
this Gunball. Like, I'm glad it provides something different. I'm glad they are acknowledging that some people, uh, both speedrunners and not not, just don't want to interact with whatever freaking story they're doing. So, mm-hmm. uh, so you can just ignore it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I like what they did with it. I know that like they have announced that they're uh, they have like six planned updates uh eat monthly releasing soon um the first one came out last week as of recording actually uh, i believe it like allows you to play as a different version of kieran and like i mentioned uh gunbolt for the full game with like the his full-on super meter so um that's cool uh i i know that they had like heavy uh post-launch support for x2 but it was all just dlc boss battles um which I didn't like. Uh, I know that Kieran was actually a DLC boss battle, but I didn't get her because honestly, X2 is bad. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well. and I am glad it wasn't in our like you know as we kind of laid out in previous podcasts the whole like running it back sequel. Uh, yeah, like, at least they are trying new ideas in this, uh, and I think a big part of that is uh, is having Kieran in there as opposed to Gunvolt being the main character. Even if it does make it kind of weird that that Gunvolt isn't the primary focus of his own game. Uh, yeah, you know it's interesting that the Gunvolt franchise, uh, the longer it goes on, um, this is actually something that I didn't realize. Someone had to tell me is that Gunvolt. For a series named after him, has only been the main character of one game. In um, two, he is um, he's a duo antagonist with Copen. Um, Copen has uh, the Luminous Avenger X series, and now in the third game, he's not even the main character. <laughs> <laughs> oh, buddy, you're losing your own franchise. That's that's so funny. I would really love if they just took all five of these games and like put them on disc or like release like you know hey like the the com- the complete gunvolt series or something like that i would love that i would uh, i would yeah. absolutely love that i would despite the fact that i already own it i would purchase that just because i would really like to have these games physically like th- that would just be and i mean like they have put them out physically but like they're individual like uh yeah. so that that honestly holds less appeal to me. I, I am a big fan of compilations. Capcom has done really well by like putting out their putting out their compilations of lately. So I would just love to see that in the, in this as well. But yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, that's cool. I'm uh, that was smart of you to play that demo as opposed to just saying like I'll just pay money and maybe be horribly disappointed by this. But uh, yeah, hopefully when you play the final game, you will yeah you will like that a lot. Yeah. But for, but for me, what else has been packing up or packing up? <laughs> uh, made a Freudian slip there. What else has been lighting up my system this week? Uh, I decided to play two, uh, two, uh, not actually games, and the other one is unpacking. Oh hey, I've heard about that. I actually really want to play that. Yeah, like uh, the as is implied by the title. It can, it, the game conveys a lot through the ma- medium of stuff you unpack. Uh, and that is, in fact, like the the loop of the game. You are in a r- room or rooms. There are cardboard boxes. You click to open the cardboard box and then get something out and then you place it down. Uh, 
at first, in the first room, I could tell I was a normal, if geeky, little girl. Like, somewhere between the ages of, like, 13 or 14 or so. Uh, and then, next level, I could tell that the main character was an aspiring art student going away to college, complete with a 2000s bulky PC computer and CR, a CRT monitor. Uh, third stage, she's moving in with female roommates. Here, there, there are rooms you can't go to and stuff you can't move, establishing the boundaries over what and what is not yours. Still, there's stuff like action figures there, a tabletop, a t a tabletop role-playing paraphernalia on the kitchen table, a cosplay outfit in the living room, and, and, and video games to around. So it feels like these are clearly li like-minded people that you're moving into. Mm -hmm. uh, the four-stage, however, and I, I feel like a lot of people say this is uh, the most standout stage from just like what it conveys... Again, just via the medium of where you are moving in and what you can do. Uh, in 2010, uh, it, it is an apartment, and it is extremely cleanly laid out uh, with multiple and sundry coffee devices in the kitchen. Um, it does a great job of conveying that, like, hey, you've got your stuff here, but, like, this person, this this boyfriend that you're moving in with, like, is already completely moved in. And it didn't feel like there was a natural fit for where to put my items. Whereas, like, they had this clean 2010 sleek corporate apartment, uh, lots, of, lots of grays, a lot of blacks around, like, my, like, all of the variety of, like, multicolored stuff... Uh, there, like, there, there wasn't a good natural place to put it, uh, like, uh, without like having her shoes cramping up the shared closet space, and also notably, no real place to hide the fe feminine cosmetic and hygiene items in the bathroom, since there was no closed-off cabinet space, and I, and I honestly felt a little awkward. I was just like, oh, I like. Do I just put this right here? Like, are the are the tampons just gonna go right here and everybody can see them? Oh, okay. I guess that's I guess that's what I have to do. Uh, uh, the, there was also no studio area for her art supplies, since the main character is obviously an artist. And I feel like in the most symbolic act, there is actually no place to hang her degree from college. Uh, so. So I was forced to stow it under the bed. Uh, it's a. Uh, it was really some some great storytelling. Also, I like that like, um, uh, in there like there's there's a television already set up. You can pack like the different game systems on that are in here. Like they all have analogs to stuff from the real world. Like the main character, she she unpacks a GameCube equivalent. Um. And let me tell you one reoccurring theme of the game, which is basically unpacking old consoles and setting them up. That's something that I can empathize with very heavily. Uh, but in that room, like, I set it up, and, like, there was no natural place to put it. To put it. So, like, I just kind of put it on top of the giant speaker next to the television. Uh, and actually under the TV, can you guess tw 2010, like, what, what, the, what, the boy, what the boyfriend would actually have underneath the television? Uh, the equivalent. Uh, 
Xbox 360? You got it. There is nice. a yeah. There is a definite Xbox 360 equivalent, and uh, I laughed when I turned it on since like consoles that are put like next to the television and are properly connected you can turn on and it like spins up the splash screen of a game uh, for the Xbox 360 equivalent you pop it up and it's uh, and it has this image of this Android Ulcerger and it says like like Android like Cold War 3 on it uh, and I <laughs> I I just had to laugh because like all of the uh, like for the main character when she has her her GameCube equivalent that spins up it's a it's a bunch of cutesy GameCube type games. Uh, now there's uh, there's little challenge to the game other than putting items in the right place. It's really notable in level five when you come back home and you have a photo of a couple that you had from the last level implied to be the player and that and a male companion. Uh, I put it up on a pushman board in the old room, and basically, once you've removed everything from boxes, the game marks certain items like with a uh, with a red out flashing outline, basically saying, "No, this has to be moved to the right right position." Uh, even though, like, I had the photo up publicly before. Uh, in the previous level, like on the like, even though the the pushman board would seem like a natural place, that was marked as incorrect. And I realized, like, oh, like I've moved back home like two years later. Let me guess. So, like, I opened up the cabinet and I like stowed it in there in a place I didn't have to look for it. That was the right. That was the right place for that photo. Uh, oh, that's yeah. a sad one. Yeah, like we're. Like I said, there there is no there is no real dialogue in this game, but it manages to convey a lot through the medium of stuff. Uh, now, level six, the main character, she finally gets her own place. It's a it's a bit run down, and l the drawers in the closet are all plastic. But there's a proper space for for everything, including a studio for her art. Uh, after a couple of halting attempts, she's finally moved out, and it feels like you know, yeah, you know, yes, ad uh, adulting for real. Uh, now, uh, le level s now after that, level seven starts in a in a unique way. It's in the same apartment, mostly as it was beforehand, where I left it, but with be better with better furniture. Uh, like when you move in, there's like a couple beanbag chairs, uh, and you you get some actual real furniture for the living room. Um, and there's a new knickknack from a trip to Sweden. That's another like neat little effect I like is the things like the main character keeps over time, and the this the stuff she doesn't like. There's a in every level there is a cute little stuffed pig that she has like, and all through from childhood to adulthood she keeps that item. Uh, but like there is like there are also clearly little knickknacks from tri from different trips she took like there's a there's a little windmill there's a red double decker bus there's a statue of the uh uh of the eiffel tower things like that that just lets you know like you know what like she she's going out she's doing things uh, she's traveling uh 
There's also an actual desktop computer for her art job, and a few art, uh, a few awards to let you know that she's managed to achieve some success in her career. Uh, however, the new boxes that come in, in a subtle touch, they're a different color and design. And it's letting you know you're unpacking for somebody moving in with you, uh, as opposed to the other way around. And uh, in this case, unlike times before, like you can more actively move your stuff and their stuff to find active spaces for all things. And it's it's a little cramped, but like fortunately there is enough spots to accommodate everything. Uh, then finally, level eight, you you move into a house. The boxes of the two partners are still here, but their stuff is intermingled, and it's implied that that they that they're uh, ma like married uh, or some other some other level of commitment with each other. Uh, and I mean that is obviously like the most rooms being in a two-story house, but yeah, like that also conveys some things. There's other again like a lot of good subtle. Um, implications over like items over time what you have like maybe uh by the by the by the eighth level like you actually like there's a uh like uh like a wrist splint or something like that that i took to imply that like maybe all the archies done on your computer has has led to some strain uh like in, in that so she she has to use use that but uh just a lot of neat little touches, and you unload all that, and that is, uh, and that is the game. Uh, now, a lot of games would have a natural escalation, wherein you get more stuff after every level in a better location, uh, in a very aspirational way. That doesn't happen in this game, and uh, and I love all the small touches that point to the complicated nature of real life. Uh, there are things packed in wrong boxes naturally, like you might, uh, as anybody who has ever moved ever will remark, like sometimes you will be packing things and it'll just be like, you know, you know, you know, screw it. Just, just throw it in here. Like it just all needs to go in a box. It all, it all just needs to go to the other place. Uh, and you'll completely forget about that until you're actually unloading the item. Like that happens, happens all the time. Like I will... Uh, it'll be like I'll, I'll be opening up a, uh, a box in the uh, uh, a, a box for for the kitchen, and I'll like find a action figure or something like that. I'll be like, oh no, that that's that's going in the bedroom, obviously. <laughs> uh, you can uh, you can actually allow items to be placed anywhere. But frankly, I didn't like that since that uh, a removes what little challenge there is to the game, and it's not very much. And b, it also uh, potentially removes some of the stories they're trying to convey around the items that you're 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 placing around. It's just like it's it's much more compelling a product if you actually have to like conform to the uh, honestly fairly generous rules of the game to begin with. And over the credits, a song plays with lyrics that pretty much says exactly what happened during the final level. It's very hokey, but it fits with the sentimental nature of the game. Uh, so, uh, ultimately, I really liked unpacking, and I can understand its cozy nature. And that, and it really speaks to me like the uh, 
the lead designer of this was uh, was a woman, and like, and she worked with her uh, with her husband primarily on. She had other people help helped work on it. Uh, it's an Australian couple, but um, this to me like is speaking to like how I feel like as a wider variety of people are making games, particularly uh, women. Like, there are going to be great co- game concepts that are being made that aren't uh, about shall we say bullet based solutions. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, and I like that. Uh, it's not that I'm against games that are about action, obviously not, but, like, it is nice to have something for a change, like using a genuine, compelling, uh, fairly stress-free, stress-free desi- like, desi- design element to it. And, and like I said, a lot of really clever, well-done storytelling, all done through the medium of the gameplay and uh and no actual dialogue yeah i i heard it was uh one of the better games released last year it's definitely something that i want to play um i don't necessarily gravitate towards uh puzzle games um but uh yeah it looks like a really interesting one and and like you said it's it's definitely a different perspective um i also quite like uh bullet-based solutions to puzzles um, but I also appreciate the uh, necessity and um, like occasional beauty of like games that don't rely on that. And uh, yeah, I've heard like nothing but good things about unpacking. And it is worth noting, like when it comes to the puzzle, like as compared to Mist and like what you referred to as Moon Logic or Adventure Game Logic, uh, there is none of that here. Like even though ki- kind of trying to discover the placement of certain things is a is a is a little obtuse sometimes like in, in just like okay was this was this blanket meant to go in the living room or under the bed or someplace like that like everything has a logical place for it there is a reason why everything is the way it is and it's and it's actual human reasoning uh, and besides that i just find there's something just kind of gratifying about having a place for everything uh, and and organizing things, I just like that, and this game naturally gravitates to that, and and that's kind of the fun and like the actual customization of the game is. I feel like there's definitely enough leeway for certain things that if you want to unpack with somebody who lives a slightly messier lifestyle, you can kind of do that. Uh, however, if you're a person that that likes to unpack, and when you unpack, you've unpacked meticulously and everything looks great, uh, you can also kind of do that too. So, uh, with the exception of a couple situations where it definitely feels like you're moving too much stuff into too little space. Um, but that always feels like, uh, it is a conscious design decision. So, uh, so my big thing is if, if anybody asks me about like recommendations of playing it, like play it because you want to play a charming narrative experience. Like if you have dealt with packing and unpacking it all with uh, like over the past let's say 25 years or so uh it, it will probably tug at the heartstrings a little bit uh and there's a decent chance you will you will empathize with some of the th- the the pixel uh art things that are being unpacked there like saying i had something like that or i know i know what that is uh and uh and let me tell you like again like the feeling of just like hey it's uh it's it's in the twenty tens and you are unpacking an SD console to ha- to hook up somewhere because that's the way you roll. I'm just like yeah, uh, 
I, uh, I know this feeling right here. Uh, but yeah, it is uh, it is a very charming game, uh, and yeah, I uh, I love it. I love the narrative experience, and anybody who's up for that should probably give it a shot. Oh no, tugging at the heartstrings. Never mind. I'll go back to my bullet-based uh, solutions. Yeah, go back to uh, World of Horror, where you, it's not really a game unless you can die in a horrible fashion at the end of it. Uh, it's not a game if I can't lose every <laughs> single time. <laughs> uh, it's not a game if I'm not uh, in transfixed staring at my hand and my hand turns into a spiral and I smash my face into my hand and my hand is absorbed into the spiral of my hand and I keep on going deeper and deeper and deeper into infinity. And that's an E ending. Uh, <laughs> there are some times where you accidentally fall into another dimension. <laughs> ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez like it, I'm going to have to play this game to just tell you about all the ways it is like Ar Arkham Horror since that is also a very Arkham Horror thing is like is you, <laughs> is you be, be, being lost in time and space and going to different dimensions uh, of course in, in, Arkham, in Arkham Horror it's all like Lovecraftian stuff uh, right and uh, and World of Horror, I think I think I'm dances around that. I don't think anything is directly Lovecrafting, although it's inspired by that. But so switch over to from something extremely cozy to the uh, uh, business hellscape that we have to deal with every week. Activision Blizzard, it's a thing. It continues to be a thing, and it is a thing this week again uh, on multiple levels. Uh, to address the first issue, a uh, According to, as reported by Fortune, the Communication Workers of America has accused Activision Blizzard of surveilling uh, employees illegally while while they were uh, while they were protesting and cutting off chat channels as staff discussed labor issues. Uh, these are the sorts of things that are uh, legally protected under the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, in responding to this, a Activision Blizzard. Uh, a, uh, representative said that the CWA is is, is quote painting an inaccurate picture, uh, and uh, and I love this quote: "The CWA's efforts are preventing the company from protecting our employees from disrespectful or disparaging remarks." Uh, so it uh, it goes on; it continues to go on about just the dumpster fire of labor relations that is Activision Blizzard. You know, I it's been a while since um, it's felt like they've done something truly awful. Uh, so maybe they're just reminding us that they're just terrible people. <laughs> like, surveilling your employees while they're like, you know, protesting the fact that you're an awful company to work for. It, it like... It's, it's beyond the, are we the baddies? It's just like, yes, we're the baddies, and we're aware of it, and we are going to continue to be the baddies. That is, uh, that is fair enough. Uh, the way... Getting out... Uh, uh, getting out ahead of, uh, ahead of things, like, when it comes to just... Uh, just just chatting about 
the industry in general I like and of course the acquisition uh, uh, Phil Spencer head of the Xbox division of Microsoft said in an interview with Bloomberg uh, he answered a lot of questions in a very far-reaching interview uh, and he asked about about uh, like basically where Microsoft wants to grow and he claimed that a big part of the acquisition of Activision Blizzard is its desire to grow its creative capability on non-console platforms, particularly console, uh, particularly mobile, rather. Uh, to quote Spencer, when we were thinking about what we are capable of doing today and where, where we need to go, the biggest pl gaming platform on the planet is mobile phones. One and a half billion people play on mobile phones. I guess, regretfully, as Microsoft, it's not not a place that we have a, a native platform. That's his way of saying, like, we, we missed the boat on making Windows Phone a thing, and, uh, and we're very sad. Uh, as gaming, coming from console and PC, we, we, we don't have a lot of creative capability that is built hit mobile games. One thing about the video game space is, if you've been around for... If, around maybe too long, you know most of the creators out there, so you know the kind of teams that could be a good fit in terms of what we're trying to do. But we really started the discussions, internally at least, on Activision Blizzard around the capability that they had on mobile and PC with Blizzard. Those were the two things that were really driving our interests. Uh, okay, I just I just want to unpack this, uh, this part of the interview right here. Uh, mm. uh, uh, because, like, I feel like part of this is there is there is definitely a true element to this. Like I think the king part of the acquisition is a big part of the acquisition, frankly, and it's probably being overlooked for understandable reasons. But like people need to realize that King involves Candy Crush and everything Candy Crush related. Like and that game is massive. Uh, like like King has actually been the most consistently profitable division of that entire company. So like it is not a trivial concern. However, at the same time, he is also framing it in terms of like, Hey, you, you know, that thing that probably won't get us in trouble with regulators because we don't have a space there. Mobile phones. Yeah. Like that, you know, mobile games, like that's really what we're most concerned about. Like call of duty. Like, yeah, no, nah, nah, not really. That's a bonus. Like, you know, you don't need to worry about mm -hmm. that. So, uh, I'm not saying this is disingenuous, but it is definitely framing uh, this in a very particular sort of way. Yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, it's also unfortunate because they, they could have just made a portable Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I mean, I, I get what they're saying because, like, yeah, mobile phone games, like, are just money sucks. Like, absolute tanks of money just uh, is sitting waiting behind a good mobile game like that's it's once that's made it's just raking in the dollars and and microsoft has never really had something like that like even even their most popular games let's for example say the halo games at one point or another like you're gonna have to go and do something else uh, like, with a mobile game, there's never really that restriction. There's always the, okay, well, I can take this anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, certainly v very true. Uh, he also mentioned how, like, he thinks that... Uh, 
uh, that like game consoles will probably be still be supply constrained this holiday. That seems feasible. And uh, other quick notes: he feels good about the chances of Microsoft's Activision deal get, uh, going forward. Uh, get, gaining approval from different countries, and I'm willing to say, like, I'm glad he he also noted he is generally ca- uh, cautious about play, play to earn crypto games. Basically, saying it's it's like turning your gamers into a underpaid workforce. Uh, so I can I can agree with that. Though I feel like uh, one one another like kind of eyebrow raising thing he mentioned was talking about console exclusive. Uh, he said that, that uh, games being made on multiple systems was better for the long-term health of the in- industry than products being tra- tied to a single platform. Uh, on, th- on that simple logic, I want to say, if there's no follow-up, I agree with that. Uh, <laughs> he, he said console exclusives are, and I quote, something we are going to see less and less of. Uh, maybe you happen happen in your household to buy an Xbox and I buy a PlayStation. Uh no, that's probably actually possible since he probably doesn't have to pay for any Xboxes. Uh, if he get, if he gets a PlayStation and he's a fan of God of War, he probably would have to play play it, pay for it. Uh, and our kids want to play together, and I can't because we bought the wrong piece of plastic to plug into our television. We really love being able to bring more players into reducing friction, making people feel safe, secure when they're playing, allowing them to find their friends, play with their friends, regardless of what device. I think in the long run, that's for the good of the industry. Maybe in the short run, there are some people in some companies that don't love it. But I think as we get over the hump and we see where this industry can continue to grow, uh, it, it continues to prove true. Okay. Uh, like, again, in just uh, in unpacking what... Uh, uh, unpacking what Mr. Spencer is saying here. Um, I mean, I agree with the core of the message that, like, you know, yes, like, uh, things being be- being able to be played on more platforms is, is a positive. I am for it. I am, I am glad for it. And, um, and I think, and I think that that has been a positive trend. On the other hand, like, saying, like, hey, uh, exclusives are going to be something we see less of. I'm, I'm just like, hey, like, well, also, now um, er- everything under the uh, Zenimax banner that you bought up, like that's now an Xbox exclusive. Uh, yeah. So exactly, like there, that's that's such a disingenuous slap in the face, um, because like unlike with Sony, like. They're kind of doing it okay with with the way that they're handling PC games. Um, Like, for example, both God of War and uh, Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man just came out on Steam. Um, That's that's fine. Um, But, like, Sony is not scooping up a whole bunch of studios just to make console exclusives. Like, now uh, Starfield has been confirmed to be a console exclusive to Microsoft and PC platforms. Like... Yeah, you can say, well, I mean, Timmy has the PS5, so we can't play with Timmy, uh, but now we're, the games have like less restrictions on that, except for the games that we have specifically bought to make for our platform. Like, <laughs> Mr. Spencer, I, I, pay, I have more than, my memory goes back more than five minutes. Yeah, I, 
unlike some people in this day and age, I have object permanence. Uh, so I can appreciate quotes outside of the context of your hopeful statements of what you're saying. So uh, mm-hmm. I would like to see the, like, honestly, fewer exclusives play more things everywhere. Yeah, that's great. But, like, like honestly, saying exclusive, not a thing, like, look, it's, it's going to be a thing for the immediate future for everybody. Don't act like you're mm-hmm. completely, don't act like you're completely above it. Uh, yeah. Though I will say, uh, on the subject of like you know, Spencer felt pretty good about like the deal going through. A this isn't necessarily a speed bump, but like more uh, news came out on that. The UK's Competitions and Markets Authority that that's basically their FTC equivalent uh, released a statement uh, that. Uh, the CMA is concerned that, that Microsoft having full control over the powerful catalog of Activision Blizzard games, especially in light of Microsoft's already strong position in gaming consoles, operating systems, and cloud infrastructure, could result in Microsoft harming consumers by impairing Sony, Sony's, Microsoft's close gaming rival, ability to compete. Uh, it added the CMA, CMA believes that in the short term to medium term, the main rival that could be affected by the conduct would be Sony. Evidence suggests that Microsoft and compete, Sony compete closely with the other, uh, each other in terms of content, target audience, and console technology. Uh, it added the PlayStation currently has a larger share of the console carving space th- than uh, the Xbox, but the CMA considers that Call of Duty is sufficiently important that losing access to it or losing access on competitive terms could su- can significantly impact Sony's revenues and user base. This impact is likely to be felt especially at the launch of the next generation of consoles, where gamers make fresh decisions over which console to buy. The CMA believes that the merger could, therefore, significantly weaken Microsoft's closest rival to the detriment of the overall competition of the gaming industry. Uh, it added... Uh, the, n- noting about ga- uh, uh, things available on Game Pass... As the market for multi-game subscription gaming services grow, Microsoft could use its control over Activision Blizzard content to foreclose rivals, including recent and future entrants into gaming, as well as more established players such as Sony. Uh, Some interesting uh, quotes and revelations here. I know Spencer uh, issued a, a statement in relation to that, which seemed to be kind of, kind of heading it off, like basically saying, basically saying the equivalent, and it's fine, it's fine. Uh, I, I will just add, like, for Microsoft President and Vice Chair Brad Smith, he responded in much more formal terms, we're ready to work with the CMA on next steps and address any of our concerns. Uh, and this, this next quote is, is, is such a duty, a doozy and a couch in the, like, this is how we're trying to frame it. Sony, as the industry leader, says it is worried about Call of Duty. But, we, but we've said we are committed to making this game available on the same day of both Xbox and PlayStation. We want people to have access, uh, more access to games, not less. Uh, that just really bowled me over, see, reading somebody from Microsoft calling Sony the industry leader. Uh, is that them saying they lost the previous generation because I, they're right yeah. <laughs> I, th- I feel like a big part of this is acknowledging that like yes we we got our clock clean the last generation okay like 
but I think it's easier to acknowledge that now since like it's basically dead and gone. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, uh, Bob Buchanan also shared a letter with all with all employees, which of course got out. Uh, the uh, talk, talking about the the deal and mentioned like how he was hoping that uh, the deal would go through by the end of Microsoft's fiscal year, which I guess the fiscal year for Microsoft ends at the end of June, so like June 2023. Uh, and he's noted that a few countries have already approved it, and he said it's quote generally moving along as expected. Uh, and he said, like in the UK, Activision Blizzard will continue to fully cooperate with the regulators there, and everywhere approvals are required. Uh, he said that like updates will continue to be given on a monthly basis on company town and town meetings. Okay, so this is this is not a signal that like the deal is being scheduled, but like this is showing that like the CMA is is taking this very seriously. Uh, and that is notable since, like, I would like there are three regulators that could really put a kibosh or like severely hamper this deal, and they are the the FTC in America, the the European uh, Commission, and uh, the the CMA in uh, in the UK. Since like actually Activision Blizzard King has a lot of employees in the UK, so. Uh, if one of those three says no, then that might completely scuttle it. So, like, and this is, this isn't that, but this shows that like they like somebody there has clearly uh, read their notes and consulted with somebody who knows things about the gaming industry. And I know things about the gaming industry since I like you've probably seen this multiple times, but like it really frustrates me how much I feel like I'll I'll see people outside of the industry talking about the gaming industry and they don't know anything. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But but in this case, and I feel like it was particularly key that they noted when they're talking about the next generation, it's true, like, video gaming, and this is part of its strength, is like, at the beginning of every generation, it is a refresh of sorts. Uh, there is often, like, people will be loyal to certain companies, and that's important, and particularly with back backwards compatibility, that pro provides a little bit of stickiness. But, like, sometimes people will, like, a new set of hardware, oftentimes people will... will We'll, we'll jump ship to the other uh, to the other side. Uh, I know over the extent of my lifetime, a lot of people have done that extensively, like jumping from one different fa like favored company to the other. I don't know if, if if you've experienced that in your life as well. I have. I had a Xbox 360, um, but at the switch of the um, uh, switch of the generation, you definitely know this. I had a PS4. Yep. Yeah, and and it's worth noting. Like, I feel like that was actually that actually was pretty standard, uh, because like definitely in the U.S. the Xbox 360 was the leading platform, but they managed to bungle the Xbox One launch so much that <laughs> um, that the PS4 had a like a considerable uh, adv advantage at the beginning, uh, to the point where like I. I knew I know exactly one person who owned an an, an Xbox One, uh, and that person is a family member who basically n uh, never played it. So, uh, 
So that was that was the actual rare rare occasion of just like hey, like I I actually I didn't know anybody who was an active gamer the next that owned an Xbox One. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like and I could tell it had obviously major majorly fa- fallen off. Like uh, it had obviously like not sold zero copies or anything like that. But I, I could tell like it had it had obviously fa- fallen far into second place as opposed to like it managing to lead it 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 was tra- trailing. Uh, it the PlayStation in the U.S. and if it was like and the the U.S. is the Xbox's strongest region and if it was trailing here, that meant it was trailing by more elsewhere. Uh, so and they basically admitted that like the the PlayStation Four sold uh, sold double whatever the Xbox One did. So yeah, uh, I mean it's still like it is a statement of fact, but still it is weird to see like Brad Smith, Microsoft president. Uh, <laughs> saying Sony industry leader uh, I, th- I think trying to say like you know hey like we, we we can't hurt them like you know hey they're they're already on top like okay like we're the you know we're, we're the weak ones here we're just trying to compete uh, that's the I feel like that's the, the context and all that um, there's that but also you know the scooping up of companies that's not competing that's that's uh Fish in a barrel, let's say. <laughs> yeah, they uh, there has been a huge escalation. Like picking up once the acquisition of uh, ZeniMax concluded, that was a huge escalation, and this is an even huger escalation. And if it goes through, then I, then my thought is like, what what couldn't go through? Honestly, mm-hmm. like exactly. Like I don't feel like. I feel, I feel like that's the time of gloves, gloves are off, like it's free-for-all. Anything can acquire anything at that point, really. Uh, and I'm not sure I want to see that future. But um, but uh, we shall see in that. That is, again, like a developing story, and we're going to be talking about it for now until the foreseeable future, really. Because uh, it, is, it is not really close to resolving. But uh, switching over from that, uh, in slightly lighter industry news, Tuesday, why don't you talk to us about the uh, July MPD sales? Yes, uh, we got some NPD information from Games Industry Biz. Uh, the U.S. gaming revenue fell 9% to $4.2 billion during July, says the NPD. Uh, but we do have numbers as to the couple of the games that came out on the charts, um, worth noting, consumer spending for the month on hardware increased 12% year-on-year to $362 million when compared to 2021. Uh, video game software sales during the month reached $3.7 billion, down 10% year-over-year. And among game consoles, the PS5 led in hardware spending, while the Nintendo Switch sold the most hardware units during the month. Uh, as far as software goes, uh, we have some very uh, interesting choices here in the uh, top five. Uh, the premier uh, premier entry at number one is Multiversus, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, that for people who don't know is that uh, platform fighter uh, involving, I believe it's like exclusively WB characters, uh, which is a very interesting way around that. Um, didn't didn't quite ever think I'd see that game is all. Um, 
it's just a wild world we live in <laughs> is all um falling below that is elven ring which is very cool to see not cool but um <laughs> i mean it, it kind of makes sense um uh, just Elden Ring's been out for most of the year now. Multiverses is brand new. I'm sure Elden Ring is probably going to be in that number one spot again before the end of the year. Uh, below that, we have Lego Star Wars The Skywalker Saga. Also uh, premiering to the list at number four is Xenoblade Chronicles 3, a very British-Japanese game. And at number five is Call of Duty Vanguard. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I'm not completely surprised that... Uh, some of the bigger numbers are falling. Uh, again, we are coming out of a pandemic. Um, I'm not completely surprised either that uh, the PS5 led in hardware spending. I think it's kind of getting a um, sort of a backwind effect from the PS4 in that there was a lot of stuff on the PS4. It would make sense for people to continue with the PS5. Um, Nintendo Switch still selling like hotcakes makes sense. Um, Lego Star Wars is still in the top five, so that's great for them. Um, and yeah, I it, it is good to see. Although neither of us will likely play it, Xenoblade Chronicles Three premiering in the top five is good news for Nintendo. You know, I it's I kind of forget that's a Nintendo game just because neither of us <laughs> just talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's totally fair. Though they they outright own Monolith. Uh, that's yeah. one of the that's one of the very few external studios uh, that they've acquired. Like as we as we covered actually in an uh, in an early uh, podcast, but yeah, like they, they own they own both the developer and the the series outright. But yeah, like it it's a mild hit for them. I know some people really like those games. I know those games aren't for me. Uh, mm -hmm. It is cool about multiverses, and that's also showing like how like I'm glad we're finally getting some visibility on digital sales since like that's 100% yeah. digital sales like yes uh, and and we get and like and that really puts it in terms of context that like hey this game is already kind of a success and since it's going to be a service game that's going to be built out over time uh, it has potential to be successful over a very long period of time since like you look at the catalog of characters they could potentially add in that game uh and it it's already pretty broad and it can get i, I mean extremely broad like i mean from even i mean we've we've got everything from like uh ca characters from adventure time to like game of thrones characters yeah uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> like and yeah like every time i look at it like it it feels kind of like the way that I feel when I look at Steve and Smash Brothers. Like, this has to be a fan thing, right? Uh, but no. Um, like, I, I'm i kind of tempted to play it because I do love Smash. Um, I think it's like a weird kind of free-to-start kind of thing. Yeah, it is. Where, like, you pick a... Okay, yeah. It's I think you, like, pick a couple characters that you can, like, play for free and then everything else yeah. you gotta buy. Um I've I've always been a fan of Wonder Woman. I really like the Wonder Woman model they have in this game. It's it, really cool. It's it's a it's a cool looking model. Yeah, like that's. Uh, I mean, that might even be be something worth worth discussing sometimes. Sometimes since I thought about that too. So, uh, but uh, yeah, like 
So Multiverse is obviously already a uh, an early success, and uh, it's it is it is only just starting, really. Like uh, yeah, like even since this time, they've added a few different characters, and they are going to continue adding characters and uh, and uh, like and add, adding extra options to them and whatever. Like it seems like they are really set up for the long term, and they they've been balancing it extensively, like to their credit. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I feel like, uh, and part of this is just reflected in like Nintendo's development pro- process. But like, I like Nintendo has always been very opaque about like their balancing in uh, in Smash Brothers, uh, like yeah. not necessarily what's what's changing, but like why they are changing and how they're they're discovering those changes. Uh, whereas for multiverses, the developer is being extremely open about receiving user feedback and analyzing it. So. Uh, that is uh, that has been a cool success story, and you're right. Like for uh, Elden Ring is going to continue selling all th- all throughout this year, and that will uh, actually be. Um, uh, I mean that that is good news for both its developer from software and also the publisher Na- Namco Bandai. Though less good news for Namco Bandai was like to move over to the Sony block. Uh, there was a official announcement by Katakawa uh, Corporations that uh, new shares will be issued to Six Joy Hong Kong, which is a a subsidiary of Tencent, and Sony Interactive Entertainment, which is PlayStation. Uh, Six Joy will, by that equivalent, own 16.25% of From Software, and and Sony will own uh, a little over 14%. And Katakawa will, will own about... Uh, 70%. Uh, Katakawa says it uh, recognizes the enhancement of the capabilities of creation and development and deployment of game IP is one of the group's highest priorities. Uh, throughout the implementation of, fr- of fund procur- procurement, from software will aim to practically invest development in a more powerful game IP to establish uh, or to strengthen from software's development capabilities and will seek to establish a framework that allows the expansion of scope of its own publishing in significantly growing global market. Uh, you probably fell asleep a little while I was saying all that, given all the corporate speak, but like the important part <laughs> is, is that it implies that they might have the capabilities to publish their own games moving forward. And if that is the case, that is a huge negative for Namco Bandai who published all of the all of the Dark Souls games as well as Elden Ring, and yeah. uh, and if, if but From has always like uh, a lot of people may not know this, but like they actually published their own games in Japan, uh, mm. like Sekiro, which was Activision everywhere else, was published by them in Japan. Um, and I will say it would definitely be a popular. It would be a popular thing with me if From never has to work with Activision again. Uh, yeah. That was literally seeing the Activision name pop up whenever I was playing Sekiro last year was objectively the worst part of that game. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I uh, I earlier this year uh, pre-ordered a game from the Namco Bandai store. Man, oh man, do they want you to be real well aware that they're the people who put out uh, <laughs> Elden Ring. Like, 
that's the first page they have on their store. They're like, hey, you want to buy Elden Ring, don't you? And it's like, no, I'm here for JoJo. <laughs> Could not be here for less Elden Ring. <laughs> yeah, you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Hello, JoJo. Uh, like, not, not, not goodbye, JoJo. Uh, no, no, I'm a weeb. <laughs> I, I'm here for the weeb section of uh, uh, Namco Bandai's uh, Outlaws. And it's interesting because, like, actually just recently, uh, the Namco Bandai Europe COO had a uh, interview with J- Games Industry Biz where he, he actually said... Uh, uh, he talked about like now that more developers are getting scooped up, it's getting more difficult for uh, publishers the size of Namco Bandai to compete. Basically, uh, saying like what I find it finds we have to secure IPs that we uh, that we want to create with the studios we partner with. If we invest in the IP creation, when we invest in the marketing of these IPs, we also have to keep in mind that we have to have some sort of security towards the future of the studio that develops this IP if the IP doesn't belong to us. So this is something to work on. You know, spread the spread of acquisition that we're seeing is affecting some of the smaller publishers and their capacity to access the best studios in the world. But we had Namco, Bandai Namco had the financial means to secure these partnerships. We work on a number of measures to secure those partnerships. If you're talking first option rights, you're talking IP ownerships, you're talking minority stakes in those studios, there are always ways to secure the relationships. Yeah. This is definitely bad news for them if... The next from game is published by from instead of them like like yeah. ab- absolutely objectively um, yeah honestly like they're in the position where if in 2020 they only published elden ring they'd still be making money oh yeah they, they're like they are public like this game might end up being the most uh the best-selling game that they've ever published uh it wouldn't yeah. surprise me like because it has been Selling absolute gang- gangbusters Call, Call of Duty FIFA levels. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Along those uh, same lines, as far as like acquisitions, um, the, uh, Sony has announced that it has acquired uh, mobile developer Savage Game Studios. Uh, it. Uh, Sa- Savage was established in, t- in 2020. Uh, it is uh, it is a mobile game developer, and it seemed like uh, uh, Herman Holtz is very aware of what like certain core gamers might th- might think about this. So said in the uh, announcement in this. Uh, as we assured you before, with our plans to bring select titles to PC, our efforts. Beyond console, in no way diminish our commitment to the uh, the PlayStation community, nor our passion to keep making amazing single-player narrative-driven experiences. Our mobile gaming efforts will be similarly additive, providing more ways for more people to engage with their content, striving to reach new audiences unfamiliar with PlayStation and our games. Savage Game Studios is, is joining a newly created PlayStation Studios mobile division to operate independently from our console development and focus on innovative, on-the-go experiences based on new and existing PlayStation IP. Um, so, yeah. They, the studio hasn't revealed the game yet, but they're... Uh, obviously, Sony likes likes what they did. Kind of like with Jade Raven's Haven Studio. Like, they, they haven't put out a game, but they obviously like the like the people that were working on it, and they, they picked up that studio. So, which incidentally, if that game hits, mm-hmm. hits, then I'm sure that investment will come back a thousandfold. So, uh, yeah. but, yeah. you know. 
my uh, my only response to that is, oh, so this is what you're gonna do to replace the Vita, because that's that's how, what that's what they complained about all the time with the Vita is, oh, it's the mobile games. <laughs> yeah. I'm not bitter. I'm yeah. just remembering. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely you're absolutely right. That was that that cut a lot into their business, and yeah, like I feel like, I mean, if. In case anybody was holding any illusions that like the Vita Two was just around the corner or something, like no, it is. It's not. It's really not. Uh, Vita Two's coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, yeah. You know what the Vita Two is going to be? Just just find a sticker that says oh, Vita and, and find find a sticker that says Two and put it on your Steam Deck. Uh, <laughs> You're not even wrong. <laughs> Like there, there you go, Vita two, uh, nailed it, um, and uh, in uh, related hardware news, they actually Sony announced the PlayStation Five DualSense Edge uh, during the Gamescom opening night live. Uh, it is a, a quote first ever high performance ultra customizable controller developed by Sony Interactive Enter- Entertainment. It's uh, you can remap and activate certain buttons, their control profiles. You can re- uh, reconfigure the the, to- the tops of the analog sticks. There is already, I believe, an Xbox Elite controller that has some of these options, and now Sony is basically offering something similar to their own for the dual sets. So, uh, I, I think this is neat. I'm not. I'm not really sure if this is going to be a thing for me. We'll see how expensive this is. Uh, these uh, these premium controllers have tended to be not cheap. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think like the Xbox One is like 120 a pop. I want to say or something like that. Sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, speaking about prices, probably definitely the biggest news coming out of Sony was the surprise announcement. That the recommended retail price for the PlayStation Five was going uh, is going up in the in the United Kingdom, Europe, Canada, Mexico, Mexico, and J- Japan. Uh, it is notably not increasing in the United States. And uh, before I get to the Jim Ryan post, I do just want to address the context for the for that. I think some people were th- were immediately theorizing that this is because of competition with the Xbox in the United States. That might be part of it, but part of also this is currency stuff. Uh, like a certain sometimes, like devices will go up in in certain regions. Like the the Wii actually in two thousand nine went up in price in the United Kingdom because the pound was strong. Uh, the iPhone re- recently, uh, Apple related products went up in price in Japan. Um, and uh, but right now, like the dollar is strong, so that's probably the reason why it is not not increasing there. Uh, so the amount increase in Europe versions are going up by fifty euros in the UK, thirty pounds in Japan, five thousand yen. Are uh, uh, in China, four hundred RMB. Australia, fifty Australian dollars. Which actually isn't quite so bad because of how like. It, it, consoles be expensive in the in the U, in Australia, yo. Uh, in Mexico, yeah. plus a thousand pesos. 
in Canada plus twenty dollars. So you can see like those those North American regions like those those increases are actually far less than some of the other regions. Like probably is a knock on effect to the proximity to uh, to America and uh, and other things. Uh, so Jim Ryan, president and CEO of Sony Interactive Entertainment, said in a PlayStation blog post, we're seeing high global inflation rates as well as adverse currency trends impacting consumers and creating pressure on many industries. Based on these challenging economic conditions, SAI has made the difficult decision to increase the recommended retail price of PlayStation 5 in select markets. Uh, the while this price increase is a necessity given the current global economic environment and and its impact on SIA's business, our top priority continues to be improving the PS5's supply situation so as many players as possible can experience everything the PlayStation 5 offers and what what it what it has to come. Yeah, I do just want to before we get on some analyst stuff on this, I do just want to note in like the uh, phrasing of all this. Firstly, I was slightly surprised in all this just because I didn't figure that like the PR hit would be worth the a uh, small potential economic upturn for Sony in doing this, but uh, but I guess their calculations were different, because um, like this was this is this is absolutely ammunition for uh, for people on the other side to say like hey look they're 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 charging more for their system like in these uh, troubling economic times, so uh, like it's definitely uh, a free win in that way for uh, for Nintendo and especially Xbox. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, like, and uh, Nintendo even outright made a statement that they're not planning on raising uh, the Switch price at all, so... Yes. Um, it's... I understand, but it's not a good look. Yeah, totally, like, and, uh, and Microsoft said something similar as well, like, talking about in their... Uh, not going to have a uh, raise at all on our, our, our. I think it was great, a great lineup of products. I think it's the the person said, but like, yeah, it's uh, it it is uh, it is just it is not unprecedented, but it, it it is unusual to see this. And I was uh, and like I said, I didn't anticipate it just because of like the like the the potential PR hit. Like this is the sort of thing that people will absolutely get, go like, you know, that's it. I'm I'm not I'm not getting this system then. Uh, like, mm -hmm. so I, uh, it's certainly like if, if I was Emperor PlayStation, I would not be making this move, but like, but I get, but I get it. Um, I understand the business reasons. And I think like, this is like, we've had quotes from both if, uh, Spencer and Ryan. And I feel like it's, uh, I've seen enough quotes from both men that I, I think like as far as in their public facing attitude, uh, like they're both business guys, but like. You can you can tell uh, like Spe uh, Spencer's huge passion for for games in and of himself, and also like they, I've commented before like about how he uh, like he might want to run for politics one day. Like I feel like he's he's really good at crafting his words. Uh, mm. Whereas like Ryan, I feel like is you can tell he, he like he is a businessman first and foremost, and he is focused on the bottom line of PlayStation. Uh, which I mean, like that is his primary job, but like at the same time, I don't feel like he's made a lot of statements that have like won hearts and minds. Uh, so uh, now, uh, when asked about this, uh, Empire Games research director Pierce Harding rules. Uh, uh, 
said, well, we believe there, there, this will be a disappointment for some consumers that have been trying to buy a PlayStation 5 without success, or that were saving to buy the console just in time for this price to increase. The high pent-up demand for Sony's device means that this price increase of around 10% across most markets will have minimal impact on sales of the console. We expect Sony's sale cast, sales forecast for the PlayStation 5 to remain unchanged. At this stage, there is no indication that Microsoft will be increasing prices for the Xbox Series consoles. Undoubtedly, Microsoft will take advantage of Sony's increase to push its value message. Although, uh, especially around the Xbox Series S, Game Pass, and its all-access offer as we enter in the holiday shopping season. As such, this move hands some advantage to Microsoft. Uh, so, yeah, like I, I'm generally, like anybody assuming that this completely... It spells doom and gloom for Sony. Like I don't believe that. I, uh, I do see it as like again. Like I think you framed it well. As like maybe a minor PR hit, like a minor boon to Microsoft. But like, hey, at the same time, you like people have been willing to pay uh, upwards of the equivalent of like like seven to eight hundred dollars for a PlayStation Five. So like, what you know, what's I guess directly playing like the equivalent of fifty dollars or less more. I guess. Yeah. So. Uh, it's it's nice to be able to have the luxury to basically say like, hey, we're two years in and we can't keep this thing in stock, uh, and also, oh god, all this inflation, we we might actually be able to afford to to raise the price a little bit, and that's mm -hmm. what they and that's what they did. So, uh, but again, like notably, n not not in the uh, in the United States. Uh, so yeah. But uh, we talked a bit about acquisitions, but um, why don't we roll on with uh, another acquisition this week of uh, definitely Tuesday's favorite game developer, Quantic Dream. Uh, David Cage! <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Oh, goodness gracious. Yes, uh, Quantic Dream, uh, notable for the work that David Cage has done there. I believe that's actually the only thing they do. Um, at least yeah. the only... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that is the only thing that they do. Uh, it has been um, acquired by NetEase, uh, the Chinese uh, publisher. This is also their first European acquisition. This comes from Games Industry Biz. One of the quotes from the CEO of Quantic Dreams is, but as not all conditions aligned, in particular the guarantee to keep full editorial independence, we decided systematically to continue as an independent studio. Um, in recent months, however, we received several offers that were that we considered interesting and which met our expectations. We decided we decided to start exclusive discussions with NetEase and quickly agreed on key terms. Uh, Net NetEase and Quantic Dream do have a history. Um, they, uh, the, develop the Chinese uh, developer took a minority stake in the studio in 2019 and have been working alongside them in various ways since. Um, we, had distinct, we had strictly no pressure since Quantic Dream was in excellent financial health and our projects were financed, David Cage explains. Uh, the current uh, consoli consolidation made for attractive offers to be expressed. Uh, which allowed us to contemplate different scenarios, generating an opportunity to strengthen our studios and to accelerate and broaden our vision and game and our business plan. 
We could have gone public, but we didn't want to compromise our creations with short-term financial targets. Selling to a large giant such as NetEase made a lot of sense. It was a strategic choice that allowed the studio to continue to evolve into having long-term ambitions uh, in competitive context. I just want to add, like, it's it's important to say, like, uh, uh, the reason why we pulled out, like, that David Cage quote is just because usually when this sort of move happens... I feel like the knee-jerk reaction is like, oh, this this studio obviously is having a uh, a, a financial sh- like short like there's a gap, and they they need to fill it in until like their next major game releases. And indeed, like they haven't released anything since uh, Detroit Become Human, and that was a few years ago. Yeah, and, and rep- reports are their next game might be a few years out, like, or a couple years out. So, but I feel like David Cage specifically got out in front of that and basically said, like, no, 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 we're, we're fine. Like, our financials are actually fine. And that's one of those things that, like, since they're not a publicly traded company, we just, like, well, I guess we have to take him on his word, like, that, that Quantic Dream is doing fine. Even though mm-hmm. they're, like... There have recently been some accusations thrown around at the French developer that uh, that painted it in a not good light. I know some people have left. I know they've had difficulty retaining people, and I believe there was a, there was another quote directly re- directly related to that as far as the acquisition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you are correct. There were uh, acquisitions of uh, accusations rather of homophobia, uh, sexism racism, and other toxic attitudes. Um, The uh, CEO states, Everyone familiar with Quantic Dream, its management, and our team perfectly knows what to think of these allegations. As a shareholder who had already audited our studio in late 2018, who had assessed all material elements and had followed all litigation outcomes, NetEase had a very clear view and could easily assess the absence of any material basis on these claims. They had thereby no impact on our discussions. I have heard bad things about Quantic Dream, and um, honestly, kind of the way that it's structured around specifically like David Cage and his visions doesn't necessarily surprise me. Like, you'll see this a lot when a company is like founded around one particular director. That person kind of starts to get a little uh, hot in the head. I'll say, and uh, kind of starts to think they're indestructible. It's not so the case most times. Um, but yeah, I like it's business PR, but it's interest. It's phrased interestingly in that yeah. I mean, they audited us, and and they the they the, yeah no we're fine. <laughs> and and that's one of those things that like again they're not a publicly traded company yeah. or anything, so it's just like okay, like we have to. Presumably, NetEase is fine with this. Uh, like, and, and I, I believe, uh, I, I believe one of their one of their executives uh, commented on the uh, on the on the acquisition for that. Like, and how how happy they are in in picking picking up Quantic Dream. Yeah, 
Simon Zhu, the president of Global Investments and Partnership at NetEase, stated, uh, Quantic Dream has been solely focused on interactive drama for 25 years. It takes immense passion and commitment for anyone or any company to spend that much time devoted to one objective. This is something we deeply value at NetEase, the true passion and commitment of creators for their work. Uh, yeah, uh, we also recognize that it's impossible to excel at something for that long without talent and technical prowess supporting that passion. Quantic Dream's exceptional team has set a gold standard for interactive storytelling. Passion, creativity, and innovation. These are the shared core values between NetEase and Quantic Dreams in, a, in Quantic Dream. In an ever-evolving industry, these abilities are both rare and immensely valuable. It's a pleasure for us to welcome that type of team into the NetEase family. I mean, sure. <laughs> I, I'll be honest, like, as, as a artistic sort myself, I, I like hearing, you know, that people are paying attention to biz, like artistic businesses and, you know, it's, it is a very PR, you know, statement of, yeah, they've, they've been doing this for so long and it's, it takes a lot of talent. There are some genuine, there are some things about Quantic Dream games that I do think are genuinely charming. Um, I do actually think the modeling in, um, Detroit Become Human is amazing, um, like they they do have some really great talent there so that's that's good it's good to see that the art is still the important thing here i mean obviously it's a bottom line decision but it's it's i i'm more comfortable with like kind of dismissing that part with quantic dream because they do focus a, more on not so much quantity as quality whether or not that's you know all the time amazing is debatable but they're not releasing you know detroit become human the cold war <laughs> they're definitely not annualized it is of a particular sort of quality shall we say all of these games uh and i feel like they're often like really derided by certain game critics but like they've obviously found an audience like whether they like the stories, ironically or unironically. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so... And it's worth noting, like, for just the general context of NetEase, uh, they, uh, like, as far as recent things, like uh, Capcom veteran Hiroyuki Kobayashi, who has worked on Resident Evil and, Kobe, uh, and Dino Crisis, uh, Net NetEase... Uh, Net NetEase hired him. They they own Grasshopper Manufacturer. That's that suit of Five One's joint, uh, and they helped establish Negoshi Studio around Yakuza creator uh, Toshihiro Net and Negoshi. So they are they are clearly making a swing in the premium game space. Uh, like that that much is mm -hmm. extremely clear. Oh no! Does that mean that Killer Seven could get a a, a Quantic Dream game now? Oh my God! Like I, I hadn't thought about that, but that would be. Uh, <laughs> can, can you imagine, like, man, that I just had a brain explosion just thinking about D David Cage and Suna Five One working together on something like. Uh, they... So Killer Seven's a weird game. 
That would be a weird. Yeah, a, a weird Japanese game put through the lens of a weird, weird French creator. Like that would be, uh, like Rick and Morty interdimensional cable level weird. Uh, really. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Gosh, I'd uh, I'd almost love to see that. There probably wouldn't actually be any cross pollination. I would have to say, but yeah, it's. It just it's just interesting to see like these these sorts of investments being made like again like as I kind of said earlier today like about how global ga- gaming is becoming and uh, and and even premium gaming because I I th- I think there's yeah like even as big as mobile gaming is I think there's this revelation that like uh, some people want to play mobile games but some people also want to play these premium games with uh, that that are ba- like that are that are more crafted that are not b- built around their economics other uh, that are built around gameplay and story and things like that and there's actually a huge market for that now so uh so netties obviously values that so that's 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 definitely something it's also smart for them to diversify as the chinese communist party continues to crack down on like the ability of use to be able to play video games so uh Okay, mm-hmm. can't dismiss that. Okay, we're going to move over to this week's topic, which is the games media that made us. Uh, we're going to relate the three most influential games media sources that uh, influenced us over the years. Uh, our three things are uh, very different between the two of us, owing to the times that we basically came of age. Uh, speaking of which... Um, Tuesday, why, why don't you you relate your the the first thing on your list? Yeah, uh, when I was a youngin, um, I had a couple friends who also played video games, and um, at the time, the world of video game cheats was brand new to me. And uh, a friend introduced me to a website that, at the time, was known as Cheat Planet. Um, later, rebranded into Games Radar. Um, they were kind of the first website that I followed, uh, but they had very fun little articles called The Top 7, uh, which I will select for one of my uh, most influential pieces of uh, game media. The reason that I'm selecting this um, specific uh, article type that they did is it was before the uh, rise of the listicle kind of article that we see now, most commonly used by BuzzFeed sorts. But they were nice little fun, distinct things. Um, the one that I have pulled up right now is the Top 7 Top 7s, uh, which is just their favorite Top 7s that they've done in a Top 7. Um, but they were about all sorts of different things. There was one that was about the best years in gaming, which listed like uh, years that influential games came out, uh, such as like 2007, talking about Assassin's Creed, Modern Warfare, Portal, Dirt, The Witcher... Um, there's one that was, uh, the top seven historical figures defamed by games, uh, and there they talked a little bit about, um, Dante Alighieri and Dante's Inferno, uh, they talked about, um, times that Nintendo messed up and, like, referencing unpopular decisions there, but it was, like, a nice little kind of, like, slice of editorial, uh, nature to the gaming industry that at the time kind of just didn't exist. Um, like, it, it was a way to flex creativity in a field that was still kind of learning to grow. Uh, Games journalism back in the day was not as um, 
well defined as it is today. Um, and it, it was just nice. It was like a weekly fun little series to like tune into on every Monday. And I was like, hey, this is cool. I'm I'm digging this. Um, so it was just nice to like see that kind of creativity and entertainment in in writing and talking about video games. So dope. Yeah, there definitely was a different era to like uh, things creating things. I really got it like when we were actually uh, doing our topic on Kingdom Hearts of all things because like we went back to the origin of that and so like going back 20 years for Kingdom Hearts meant going back to a lot of old websites, a lot of yep. which don't exist anymore. Uh, and it just it just reminded me like how much the format has kind of changed over the years. Uh, and also how like I feel like Game websites have also, like, frankly, lost a lot of influence over the years. Although, like, Games Writer continues yes. to this day. They unfortunately they no longer do top sevens from what I've seen, but um, they're also a lot more of a uh, media company now as well. They like cover uh, movies and comics as well, which is fine. But uh, back in the day, they were golden with uh, with the top sevens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I. Uh, I will say, like, that is actually something that is, uh, that certain, uh, like, other websites, like, I know Kotaku tried to, uh, like, deal with other non-gaming things related for a while. Like, IGN, like, is obviously a er website. It covers everything. Like, it's not just games anymore. And, like, and that's fine. Like, but for for us, like, I've always thought, like, I will just say, like, for uh, the uh, SNGP, like, I I always wanted us to be focused... uh, uh, purely on gaming and gaming related properties so like uh i mean and part of it is it just like the extent that like we can cover it as part of this hobby but also part of it is just like is is giving things focus uh and uh and i generally if i go to a gaming website i want to be reading about gaming not like things that are maybe not even uh, directly gaming at all uh Though I, uh, to switch over to me, mine, like for, for mine, like I, I have a website as well, and it is a website that's, I guarantee very few people have ever heard of, and it is the GIA, or the Gaming in- Information Agency, and uh, this was a website that sprung up in the, uh, the late 90s. Uh, it is a website that was, uh, it's, it's writers and creators were, de- were devoted to uh, ta- talking about specifically JRPGs. Uh, that was the primary audience. It did talk about other other games that were not JRPGs, but it did. It was mostly focused on JRPGs, and uh, and one of the things that really uh, I really t- took from all that was just how like cute and boutique like its focus was like on uh jrpgs particularly jrpgs uh like uh this the site had a extensive fan following like it's that's one of those things that like back in the day like in the web 1.0 days like i remember encountering that and just surfing and seeing like a banner on on for another website and checking it out and i think reading a review or two and liking the writing and also liking the uh the humor of it like they they like to put a lot of cutesy fun captions uh, uh, underneath uh, screenshots and all that, and just like it was clever, and uh, and I really uh, appreciated that, and that was also uh, that was also really the the peak of my like days uh, 
fr- frankly, focusing on uh, uh, JRPGs. Like, that was probably the peak of my JRPG fandom. Uh, and they were very JRPG-focused. So, I appreciate all that, and... Uh, uh, and this is a fact that, like, I know about a, a probably one of the most um, famous game critics on the planet, Jeremy Parrish. He actually got a start on that site. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure many people n- noticed. Like, I was a colleague of his briefly, and I I brought it up in a company Slack, and I think he was shocked that anybody remembered. <laughs> that, that's that's super cool. I, what, yeah, what you said about, like, when uh, the websites used to have the fun captions, I, yeah, I remember that era. I, I also remember the era, sort of, of, like, where there was just, like, a banner uh, leading to another website. Um, for quite a while, it was uh, IGN and, was it, what was it, like, GameSpy uh, had very similar website builds, uh, very similar, like, link-to-each-other patterns. Um but yeah, that's I had not heard of that. <laughs> you are correct in that in that point there. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, it's even like I love how it's uh, like even in his brief bio, like he's done a he's done a million things, but now, but like you know, he he does note his his time his time on uh, a bunch of websites, and he does openly acknowledge the gaming uh, intelligence agency, and uh, and that's super cool. Like, I, and yes, I am one of the few people that remember it had a, like I said. This was actually back in the weird early Web 1.0 days, back when like websites could actually be too popular. And uh, and you might say, how could that happen? The answer is, it was more difficult to get advertisers on the internet back then. So if you generated too much traffic, it was difficult to get advertisers. So that meant like you were paying a lot for traffic, and you weren't able to support the site. So there were actually a number of fan sites back then that would get crushed under their under their own popularity. And it was also like harder to like do, like donate back then. Uh, so it's one of those things that like who knows like maybe if it had been, like been supported a few years later maybe it would have actually been an actual official thing like maybe it would have persisted on like R- like RPG Gamer, you know them? Like they've been they've been around forever. Uh, and uh, like, and I think they started as a fan site, and they're an official site, and they have reviewed, I think, every RPG game on the planet. But, um, but yeah, I, I just love the the cutesy, bo- you know, boutique, f- uh, fancy, but also like very passionate coverage. Like they were also known as uh, very heavy Final Fantasy <laughs> fanboys. I feel like that was the uh, that that was the reputation of the site was just loving everything Final Fantasy. Uh, but uh, yeah, like that, that definitely had a uh, had a huge effect on me, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm, and uh, I may or may or may not have uh, uh, bro- broken up with a significant other after I uh, found out late in college that the, that the site was sh- shutting down. Uh, it was, uh, it was not, it was not a great. I, w- I wasn't in a good mood. Uh, That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. I understand that. Anyways, but what is your next media source, Tuesday? Yeah, uh, the next one that I would say is actually the Nintendo Power Magazine. Um, When I was in 8th grade, um, my dad actually uh, subscribed to that for me because I was an 8th grader and I was useless um, as a human being. Um, (laughs) And um, it was like the first gaming magazine, magazine that I had ever really read. 
Um, but it was, like, completely, obviously, focused around Nintendo stuff. Which, like, I feel like had a uh, pretty big impact on me growing up to be an adult. Uh, but that was... Um, I remember that the first issue was actually about Tales of, I want to say, Fantasia, maybe? Um, for the Wii. Um, it was one of the Tales games, at least. Uh, I remember, like, the they had that as their cover story, but then, like, one of the biggest bolts as well was that that was the issue that they reviewed Super Smash Bros. Brawl in. Um, and I was like, okay, this is interesting. Um... And I read the Tales of Story, I was like, eh, this is whatever. Um, and then they had, like, a full two-page spread reviewing um, Super Smash Bros. Brawl, and I was like, okay. <laughs> um, but to me, what was most fun about the Nintendo Powers was that, like, every... Before they got into the main stories, it was, like, a typical magazine. They had, like, three main stories per issue. Uh, they always had, like, these brief little, like, uh, highlights of just, like, games that were coming out uh, that they just, like talked just about quick little doodads that they learned in the past month. Uh, there were a couple times that they talked just about the development of Scribblenauts there, like what had what updates had come from that. Uh, every E3 issue that they had, they uh, put like the quick little blurbs that they learned a little bit more about each game in, the, in those like pages. And those were always fun to read just to like see um, what new games are coming out that I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. This is something that I want to pay attention to. But the coverage they also had in the bigger stories was like just super great. I remember uh, one of the issues that I loved the most uh, just talked only about Mad World. Um, I was too young at the time to play Mad World, um, but, like, I read about it and I was like, this is a wild game. And, like, they just had a really good, like, editing team that, like, for every story that they had, they, like, designed each of the pages around, like, the theme of the game. Like, the Mad World one, like, all of the, uh, like, headers of the articles were, like, in a blood red color. The background was black. The text was in white. It, like, stuck with the Mad World aesthetic. And it was just, like, that kind of, like, nice attention to detail and, like, they cared about, like, writing about Nintendo stuff, and I was like, this is cool. Um, I subscribed to it until it, unfortunately, uh, went out of business in 2012. Um, their final issue uh, was a recreation of the first issue, and they just, like, talked about, like, some of their favorite articles over the years, and, like, uh, that was before the Switch was coming out, so they talked a little bit about, like, the Wii U, like, a couple of the games that were coming out, and then they closed the issue. Um, they did, uh, I think some of the same team, uh, ended up making Nintendo Wire, uh, which is kind of the same thing, but I, Nintendo Powers, uh, was where it was at. I loved that magazine back in the day. Yeah, like, uh, certainly the production quality on Nintendo Power could, uh, not be denied. Uh, the, the style of it definitely shifted a lot over the years. That's cool about the whole Mad World thing. Mm. I feel like there was a large part in like the late 90s where they became uh, extremely Pokemon-focused, uh, much to the annoyance of uh, slightly older gamers. But uh, you know, it uh, definitely in the... like. I mean, Nintendo, Nintendo Power was definitely a kind of seminal experience for me, even though, like, I never, uh, subscribed to the magazine. Like, that's just one of those things that, like, was, it was around, uh, as a kid, like, friends had them, and, uh, and I mean, I will tell you back in the day on the, on the NES, like, having things, like, they would have very extensive, um, maps of areas and that could be real that was really handy back in the in the back in the, in the NES days when most games did not have an in-game map at all. So, uh, 
you either disco- you either discovered things by like keeping maps your own, having uh, a good internal memory, or by looking at something like Nintendo Power. So, uh, and the the look was always certainly top notch. Though, from uh, and the game you might have been th- thinking of on uh, Wii was Tale- Tales of Symphonia: Dawn of the New World. Yep, that was, that the, was Symphonia. That was yep. <laughs> As as soon as I like gave like three more seconds of thought to it, I was like, "Wait a second. <laughs> but for me, I also had a a, uh, a magazine that that influenced me. I like I said, I never subscribed to uh, Nintendo Power, but I did subscribe to a magazine called Game Players. I remember this was actually something I. Uh, I bought for a friend on his birthday. I remember buying buying an issue of that magazine, and uh, and I bu- bought an issue for it. But like I remember looking at it, and I gave it to him. But like I remember reading it myself and going like, man, like I I really like this. And then my my sister is a surprise thing. Like obviously my uh, I think my my mother had noticed. So like uh, my sister got got me a twelve month subscription to uh, to to game players on on my own. I was just like, oh great, I, I can get this and I can re- read this on my own. And this was really a uh, an eye opening thing for somebody like I was eleven at the time. Um, and uh, it's uh, it exposed me to a lot a lot of things. Like firstly, like as like actually at the for a while, like game players maintained a Sega magazine and a Nintendo magazine. Uh, eventually, they combined into one great big covering everything in the industry. Game players magazine, uh, and uh, a big product of that was like. Again, you have to realize back in the early '90s, you know, kids, kids these days don't realize like information on uh, gaming ga- games themselves and uh, gaming systems was like hard to come by unless you like subscribe to a magazine. So like that gave me a lot of exposure to games and systems. Like otherwise, like you know, I didn't have friends that like owned a Sega CD, uh, like or a uh, or a CDI. Or something like that, but I got to read about those systems and the and the games on it through through game players, uh, and that was cool. And like it gave me a good base knowledge of of games. And like I uh, I always loved uh, like whenever it came, I read it every month. Like actually, I would say like my habits were like okay. As soon as I got it, I would immediately take it in, and I would I would just quickly read over it for like the the things that excited me most. Uh, like I would otherwise breeze over it, and then later I would actually read it again, and I would read I would read over all of the thing. Uh, like I would basically uh, just scour every every uh, topic. I would read everything in the magazine in the second time, uh, and uh, it also gave me a uh, access to like critical analysis of game news like they actually had a pretty good game news section that included like some I wouldn't exactly call them scoops but like it it, it talked about like uh, company closures and acquisitions and like it was it was clearly it was put in adult language uh, like even though it felt like the the target audience was teenagers like it didn't it didn't feel like it was talking down to its audience and so uh, that honestly really started me there in just like critical analysis of the industry and uh, and not just thinking about the industry itself as magic. Uh, it's just like no, there, there's real people and there's real companies making this thing. Um, 
and uh, along with it, like I still remember, there were like a lot of space was devoted to reviews, uh, like full page reviews, uh, double double page reviews. Those were very common back in the day. Like lots of screenshots. Um, again, like it feels silly about like you know talking about like how that's a uh, appealing thing, but like there was a particular style to the magazine. Like again, it was a, it was a, it was a lighthearted like uh, style, but like, uh, and it, it certainly had some like you'll find some fan websites over the over there. Like even today, like talking about the particular uh, quirky, irreverent, irreverent sense of humor of game players even to this day. Um, but. Uh, on top on top of that, like they actually did like good serious reviews, and uh, and I mean like and that honestly like gave me a baseline level of like thinking about games critically, since like it, it's one thing if like I feel like it's easy enough to just rate every game as being kind of good in a way, uh, but but game players was like definitely willing to. Uh, judge things on a really a full 10 point scale uh which it had uh it also it also really averaged things at a five like five was five was genuinely average uh to them so because of that um i mean like and thinking in those terms it really made me think about like okay like how good good are games relatively i also kind of like their they had different ratings for different elements of the game like like it weighed like okay the graphic score this sound is that control is this gameplay is that like gameplay and controls were obviously rated high most highly um uh help like and uh and that was an intriguing system like i actually I feel like that's one of those things that's really fallen by the wayside in like all review formats, and that's probably for the best. Like thinking about like weighing different elements of the game, and 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 in the end, you you put that into some sort of algebra and get a review score. Uh, I think it's probably just better to have like just a direct like, yeah, the score is a reflected reflection of my experience. If you're going to give a score at all, mm-hmm. uh, but. Uh, but still, like, the detail of it just made me think about games in a different way. And again, like, frame the way I think about games even to this day. Uh, another th- big thing was, like, they, like it, of course, had a letters column. Uh, and in that letters column, I got my first exposure to fanboyism. Uh, which I honestly didn't know was really, really as much of a thing, like, until... Because, like, I didn't... I didn't have friends that were that like owned different systems or like had any sort of territorialness about it, but like in those letter columns, like I could see like people uh, t- talking stuff about like se- Sega fans and Nintendo fans, Nintendo fans to Sega fans, uh, like uh, nobody else honestly even even really mattered all that much. Like even even though like the uh, like the C- CDI three uh, and three uh, DO and Turbo Graphics might have been around, but like it was mainly about those two. But like, really made me realize how uh, just territorial and tribal people can get about uh, gaming systems, and it uh, it definitely persists even even to this day. Uh, like people are willing to get uh, thoroughly invested in in, cor- in corporations over which they they have no ownership. Uh, but yeah, 
Game Players was a uh, was a was a huge influence on me. Even to the point where, like, I remember I would often spend su- summers just like re- rereading the magazine mm-hmm. uh, back when I was growing up uh, because I, ju- I just uh, enjoyed the content so much and enjoyed reading about uh, games so much. Uh, game, even a lot, a lot about uh, ga- uh, games I wouldn't own until years later. Yeah, yeah, I I like what you said about the way that they uh, reviewed games. Like that, that is something that like has unfortunately fallen by the wayside. Is that like games are such a distinct experience that they they can be formed up of multiple things that make them good. Um, like uh, I will not deny that Metal Gear Rising is absolutely amazing, um, but if you if you take out the soundtrack of Metal Gear Rising, it's still a fantastic soundtrack. Um, like that that alone is just an amazing thing and but like it definitely adds to part of what makes metal gear rising amazing and it's it's something that not a lot of companies do uh, i definitely i definitely relate to you just uh, spending uh summers just rereading uh the magazines when at in in my in my younger days when it was summertime and uh nintendo power uh was coming out i like i remember it was probably around like the 10th or the 12th I would be like, is the mail here yet? I need to check the mail because I know Nintendo Power is going to be here. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was just, it was, I, I relate to that. Yeah. It was, it was different back in the day, like, when everything moved slower. And, like, again, like, that was the only way to find out about, like, new games, really, like, mm-hmm. was, was magazines. Like, the, uh, Functionally for that purpose, like the uh, the internet, which was ki- kind of in its early 1.0 stage, like was it wasn't that useful. So, um, and most people didn't have it. I I didn't I didn't have access to it to it to it back then. But uh, but so you so you had access via these via these magazines. And I also did appreciate that like game players was always uh, independent, and that subscription ended up like after it's um, the magazine ended up folding. It ended up morphing into a next generation uh, magazine subscription, and then finally to a uh, PlayStation magazine subscription, uh, just via the fortune of, of magazines over the world. And that, and that eventually, uh, that was one of those things that like I kept that up for a while. That that subscription, like even if I wasn't reading much of the magazines, frankly. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, even I had to acknowledge, like, in about, uh, 2008, I realized, like, for, like, look, I'm, I'm doing internet game coverage, like, I'm barely reading this magazine, it's, it's superfluous, I realized, like, I was just maintaining it for tradition's sake, uh, and I wasn't really gaining much from it anymore, and that's, and that's where that, uh, that subscription ended, but, like, yeah, like, it, it was very formative for me, uh, but, uh, so what is what is your third piece of gaming media? Yeah, uh, the third piece of gaming media that I would say uh, I I found most influential uh, was honestly watching uh, the YouTube channel Two Best Friends Play. Um, for those who do not know, that was a Let's Play channel composed mostly of uh, Matt and Pat, uh, who for quite a while were two best friends, uh, just hanging out playing video games. Uh, coincidentally. Uh, their first uh, Let's Play was of uh, Silent Hill Downpour, um, which is kind of where they got their traction. Um, just because Pat, 
uh, was a gigantic Silent Hill fan and knew like a whole bunch of lore stuff and had played every game. And when it came out, he was like, oh yeah, this game's real not good. Uh, <laughs> so they just played it and made fun of it. Uh, it. Really, for me, I paid most attention to them uh, when I was in college and the few years after that. Um, I would just spend a lot of time just hanging out, uh, playing a game on my own while having them on in the background. Um, I really liked their uh, Halloween series every year. Uh, they Every day they uploaded two videos, one at uh, about 2 p.m. and one at about 7 p.m., 7 or 8 p.m. Um, in the Halloween months, uh, in October, they would upload at uh, 8 p.m. just a video of them playing a scary game. Um, and it was awesome. I, I, I love Halloween. I love horror movies, horror video games. It was really cool to just like hear these two guys pound around playing video games. Um, I never particularly got into the streaming kind of, uh, form of entertainment. I always liked, uh, just like recorded stuff instead. Um, and like, these were really well done videos. Like they had like every time, like the few let's players that I had watched beforehand, uh, like, their editing was decent, but, like, occasionally they would be mid-sentence and the video would end. Um, with uh, Two Best Friends Play, they had an intro, uh, they had an outro. Um, the outro wouldn't play in the middle of their conversation. It would usually end on, like, where they had just said some joke or, like, had stopped a conversation, uh, and then the episode would be over. I really liked that. Um, I liked watching, like, a lot of their series, uh, obviously the Halloween one. Um, over time, they had a couple other friends on there who, uh, one of them left for his own reasons, but he was actually, uh, it was Liam, he was in one of my favorite uh, Let's Plays of theirs, which was Disaster Report, uh, which is a stupid, hilarious game, um, just about, like, an earthquake hitting a fake city, and they just, like... That's the thing, is that they also, like, played a bunch of, like, non-relevant games anymore. Like, they played Disaster Report in 2000... in 2016. Uh, like, well a decade well after the game had come out. And, like, they played some newer games, like when Evil Within 2 came out, they played that at the end of, uh, October. Um, they played, obviously, Disaster Report. Um, they did one-offs of just, like, a couple episodes of a game that they were like, this is something that we want to talk about, but we don't want to do a full uh, play of it. Um, one of their series, Omicron, is hilarious to watch because it just highlights all of the wild glitches in that game and all the fun things that happened for them. Like, they actually just, like, talked about how, like, for one of the sessions uh, previously, the game was not working, and they just kept dying at a certain point, and they are like... Do we finally get to end the suffering of Omicron? Um, but one of them put in a overtime day and uh, just got through that section, and they had recorded it. They're like, all right, we still have to beat Omicron. <laughs> um, unfortunately, they ended up dissolving in 2018. Um, they they did they one of the uh, main players there uh, was big into fighting games, so every Friday they would on their uh, 8 p.m. slot outside of uh, Halloween, they would have um, Friday Night Fisticuffs, uh, which is just them playing like a fighting game, being all technical-like. Um, they ended the day that Super Smash Bros. Ultimate came out. 
so there was never a fisticuffs for Smash Brothers Ultimate, which is a gigantic disappointment. Um, uh, that was a huge bummer. Um, they have since moved on to like mostly streaming. Um, Matt uh, Matt is has a series called What Happened on his YouTube channel where he talks about like various game development disasters that ended up either in good or bad stuff, but it's never been quite the same. Um, it's never quite the same to just not be able to stream just or just watch like five hours of Let's Play in a row. Um, but I, I loved it. It was it was nice to like see uh, this kind of beginning. They were a early content creator kind of uh, source and they just were great at it. And uh, most of the times it sounded like they were having fun. <laughs> Yeah, well, they probably were until, uh, I mean, I'm, they've never been public about the issues that broke them up, but uh, it almost certainly is some sort of personality issue that uh, drove, them to, drove them apart. Along with, like, if you're doing a series like this, you are spending a lot of time with a person. Yeah. And if they're, even if, and even if they're a close friend, like, uh, they, they're a business associate. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and sometimes a little bit of a person we know, even if we like them on some level, can go a long way. Mm. So, uh, but but putting that aside, yeah, like they've they've broken up. Like other best friend adjacent people, like Wooly, have uh, have ma have made their their own fortunes as well. Um, and and you talking about that just made me think, like you know, man, like even the the nature of gaming on youtube has changed a lot mm -hmm. uh over that time like because you're right it, it used to be about like you know these extensive uh like let's play uh videos and uh and that was huge for a while but like now that that has definitely fallen uh out of vogue uh and it's not like there isn't uh video gaming youtube like god no but like as far as the long plays like you know that that tends to be things that like people will do on twitch uh, like they will, they will stream it, and uh, and the videos on uh, YouTube themselves, like if they're not just repost that, like they tend to be more curated mm -hmm. than just uh, putting out let's plays. Like the like the the era of, of let's play videos and their prominence feels like it's kind of come and gone. Yeah. Uh, like, but uh, yeah, like. That was definitely hugely, uh, hugely influ influential, and I feel like uh, I mean, there's actually a content creator on uh, on YouTube, Maximilian Dude, who uh, is known for his work for the fighting game community. Though he he like plays a bunch of different games, but like he has managed to completely sh uh, shift himself into being a modern content creator, and he does YouTube stuff and Twitch stuff very extensively, uh, and he's extremely good at it. And fortunately for him, he has his uh, dudes, his, th his three friends that he hangs out with. Though fortunately, in, the, in their case, they have a uh, they they are still friends even after years of doing stuff with each other. So uh, it's a much more positive story than the way that uh, that the best friends ended up. Though I still find it amusing that like uh, though two best friends play is no more. Their their uh, Reddit lives on. Yeah, uh, yeah. fairly actively. <laughs> Yeah, it's a like, yeah. Despite the fact that uh, the the YouTube channel is now like they they have said that they as long as they can, um, they don't have any plans to take those videos down, uh, which is nice because I actually recently uh, watched them play Binary Domain. Um, uh, 
that is just there's no updates on that there hasn't been since like two, 2018 uh 2017 maybe um but the subreddit is updated daily uh by the community just uh there's a fun tag on there called better ask reddit uh which is just basically nerd ask reddit uh fun little things that are like i think today was uh one of them was what's an instance of a character who uh acknowledges another character's uh, greatness uh, despite the fact that they're enemies uh, it's just a bunch of nerds getting together and being like hey what's your favorite nerd media example of this um so it was, it's clear that they had like a distinct fan base that like really loved their content and like just continues to want to interact with each other yeah that's the incredible thing that like even though that is passed like there's still uh people that are built up around it like it's a very unique internet thing but uh but for me, uh, my final piece of games media that had a large impact uh, is was the Giant Bombcast. Uh, this is uh, they often joke like the the people that in, invented uh, talking talking about games on the internet. Uh, though, uh, really, honestly, like they're. Uh, this has origins in a podcast called The Hot Spot, which used to be for GameSpot, uh, started by Jeff Gertzman and Ryan Davis. Uh, and it eventually, like, quite famously, many years ago, like, uh, Je Jeff Gertzman posted a review of Kanan Lynch that the... Uh, they then had an editorial didn't like who was like there was a real conflict of church and state in that like the head of editorial like had had actually left and the new guy was actually the advertiser head too so like it basically conflicts around Kane, Kane and Lynch meant that uh, Jeff refused to change his review and he was let go uh, so he founded his own website uh, in the in Giant Bomb uh, and multiple people left from GameSpot and eventually like they developed their uh, their own podcast uh, no, known as the Giant Bombcast uh, or just Bombcast and uh, and for me like what I really took from it was uh, it was a really freewheeling talk about uh, video gaming so like uh, just the openness of being able to talk about like whatever you have in gaming like that's obviously reflected in, in what, what we do right now um and uh, uh, I really valued like the ability to just like be able to speak openly about your your opinion of, of things in the game like and also they they had a section to talk about gaming news um, uh, which I appreciated that like they were they were willing to copy that too though it's interesting like how there's actually some things like from listening to it like I that I decided like I wanted to do uh, differently from SNGP firstly one of those things is like um, there was often there was often ta talk in the beginning that was like some banter where they would talk about their lives and I'm not dismissing that as a thing, but I decided that like for us I wanted there to be just more pure focus on the game and like and not talking about like whatever is in our lives for the podcast. So uh, so we we don't do that. Um, as well as like when it comes to talking about the gaming media itself, like I feel like. Uh, I come from more of like a news background as opposed to like a, consu a consumer's review background. So like my background is slightly different than, than those guys uh, who were, were a giant bomb. So like I like I wanted to be able to cover news in a particular sort of way. Uh, like and uh, 
uh, and I feel like we do, and I'm uh, and I'm I'm very, I'm very happy with that. Like I, the ability to express uh, my and our opinion on it uh, is very important to me. Uh, but like also uh, as with uh, as with other things, I enjoyed the the kind of goofy tone of the the series like basically uh, guys just being able to to talk about like whatever like dealing with in games and talking about like the funny quirky experiences and making funny references there was a particularly amusing episode right after duke nukem forever uh it came out and they uh, and I think there was a super clip on uh, on YouTube of just like whenever, like in that podcast, whenever somebody started doing doing a, <laughs> uh, a Duke Nukem impression, uh, like I love that. Yeah, like I I I use that I use that that alien as a toilet. I shot that alien in the head and ordered a pizza. Like, <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but and uh, I remember Jeff was talking about like the the Wii about like you know if, like hey if I'm gonna make the slot glow, glow in the Wii like you know you, you, like you know you better give me some rhythm heaven and I think uh, Vinny chimed in with I'm gonna make the slot glow like. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, Ryan was like, th- "Thanks, Duke." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it was they, that, yeah. I, I I love that episode, but like, anyways, like there, it was just kind of that like funny, jokey talk about things, and I wanted to be able to have that, and I think like we're able to. Like I want to be able to talk about games seriously, but also be able to have fun as well, because because you know what games are fun. Yeah. Like, uh, and we should we should have fun being able to talk about games. Like, so like we have that. Like we're like we joke about the news where it's appropriate and to have the right tone for that where it's appropriate. Another thing that like they did that like I uh, like I'm I also uh, <laughs> have no inclination to do is like an email section. Uh, and and part of it is just in like in my experience when you do an email section for like this sort of podcast like it is really or, or for a lot of things it is really easy for it to degrade into things that are like like food questions relationship questions like theoretical que- like uh, questions like about like about a theoretical situation that wouldn't happen that are that reveals something about you. And like, and that's fine if you want to do that sort of radio show thing. But like, my focus is like, no, like I want us to be, I want us to be focused on the the task at hand, not to be uh, doing like kind of goofy goofy radio show things uh, that are not related to games. So uh, that's just my personal take on that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I will say, like I uh, I enjoyed the Giant Bombcast for for many years, though like. Honestly, the the uh, like the staff there there now. Uh, honestly, like over the past two and a half years, the staff saw like almost a one hundred percent turnover. Oh no! So so there is almost no resemblance to the current staff of the Giant Bomb as compared to what it was. So. Uh, I, d- I wish no ill on any of the new people working there, but also uh, what they do doesn't uh, doesn't really interest me anymore uh, because of that turnover. So that is what it is. 
Um, uh, I know they also did a famous like game of the year uh, take, which like, I mean, that was a very particular game website thing, and that like they tried to reach some sort of consensus over like site awards and have a discussion over that. Uh, I mean, like I always listen to those, and I w- listened to those for many years until like. It felt like there had been enough members added that there was no longer a good sense of democratic consensus among people over what the discussion should be, and it turned into such a negative free-for-all that I, I just stopped listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, like, it, it literally became toxic, and there was a couple people that I just never wanted to hear speak, and I, would, I was just like, I, I like I can't listen to this. This is, this is actually kind of traumatizing. Uh, I I never want like for us uh, I mean like there are certain things we will discuss to get like certain consensus about but like when it comes to like our game of the years list like y- like we did this this year like you know you had your favorite games I had my favorite games like and that's the important thing since like uh, consensus is very hard to reach among multiple people and I feel like it is just a reflection of like honestly uh, just our opinions like and that that's the important thing. Uh, and that's going to be different since, like, also, um, we play different games, and we don't necessarily play current games. And that's also a thing that I wanted to do by design, uh, because I didn't want to be slave to, like, whatever the, the the newest hot thing is, or even just the newest thing is. Like, I didn't want to be forced to cover that. And you'll, you'll see then, like, what we talk about in games. Like, sometimes we'll talk about newer things things like other times like hey like i talked about uh like playing mist uh like <laughs> this week mm-hmm. like a uh a not new game in new game in the slightest uh, I, but yeah, like, that's i kind of wonder it, if mist is the oldest game we've talked about <laughs> uh i mean it's 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 in the realm of the older game games I've, I've talked about but i mean like you know i've talked about nes games that's before, true that's true and uh you know and and I will and I will continue to do so. Uh, and like that's that's just what I always always wanted out of it. Like I did, and I, I didn't want any pressure on either of us to like again like play current games. And I also didn't want to be so myopically focused on the vanishing now that we lose sight of like the extensive future of gaming, like the past of gaming. Uh, like I since I feel like. Uh, sometimes, like, honestly, when I play older games, it will make me realize, like, how far things have come, and also, like, how sometimes ideas will, will like, uh, come up in a game and, and never get picked up on. Like, that just happens, and it'll just give me a new perspective on things, that, which, like, I wouldn't get if I played only the newest games. Uh, so that's why I attempt to do so. I'm not sure if, if you've, uh, have you ever uh, been invested in a uh, gaming podcast, uh, uh, no, no, I have not. Uh, the only, I I know that I briefly browsed um, Giant Bomb uh, just a little bit, whilst uh, in middle school when Atlas was doing some stuff, uh, specifically uh, in relation to uh, the Kenka Boncho game that uh, came out in America. I know that they did a Cyber Bomb Quick Look, um, but or Giant Bomb Quick Look rather. Uh, but that's that's about the only interaction I had with that. But um, from what I've I've from what I've heard, they were very very quite good. 
Um, but I also have heard that, uh, yeah, they have a high turnover rate now, which is unfortunate. Uh, it reminds me a little bit when we had a conversation about uh, if all of the Activision Blizzard staff are replaced uh, to make Diablo 4, is it going to be the same thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like the uh, the, the ship of Theseus question. Like yeah. it's uh, like is is the is the giant bomb which like it still has a pretty extensive staff for a gaming site. Like, but now that it's uh, a bunch of people who are like new or relatively new or like not terribly well personalities. Like, is this is this the same giant bomb anymore? Like, and a few of the a lot of those guys have left and done their own things now. Uh, and they have established their own brands. Like, is is that more Giant Bomb now? Frankly, like, and uh, and I'm I'm not one here to answer that theoretical question. But uh, but I will just say like these sorts of things are personality driven, and uh, I wish the current staff of the Giant Bomb the best. But like, it is it is going to be a challenging thing to uh, establish it without a lot of the f- founding seminal members of the site. So. Uh, but, yeah, those are the pieces of gaming media that made us. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, again, though, our website is uh, patreon.com SNGP. In the future, definitely going to be looking to do something around um, the uh, five years since the launch of more versus confident infinite and i feel like one of the the worst marketing campaigns that has uh, ever occurred in the history of gaming uh along with like uh i mean potentially also like talking about we're going to be hitting 15 years of uh call of duty 4 modern warfare and i, th- I think i want to reflect on that too since like I feel like there's few games over like that generation that had more effect on gaming than than modern warfare did like uh, just a just a massive impact, uh, along with uh, potentially in the future t- uh, talking more about Tomb Tomb Raider uh, anniversary, and uh, and of course like the uh, spooky time is coming up in October, and uh, and we we've got some got some plans for that. Uh, like lots of plans we've talked about, and uh, you know, and certain certainly among them, uh, like we talked about Silent Hill last year. I would like to talk about Silent Hill too. Heck uh, yeah! Uh, minor teaser there, but that's. I thank you all for listening, and hopefully we will see you all next time.